51 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com, and special guest Michael Gray. And my cats are running around getting their nightly exercise. So if you hear some scrambling, that's my cats. So today we're talking about 1998, the year that Shakespeare in Love beat Saving Private Ryan. And uh, it was also the year of several great films like The Truman Show and Gods and Monsters. It was also the year that Roberto Benigni won Best Actor, and ma- mainly for just kind of his antics on talk shows, jumping up and down on couches and you know, running through audiences and hugging people and kissing people. And there was no way he couldn't win, given that. It's, it, he's one of the only actors I've ever seen go through something like that and, and win uh, in his, you know, on the, on the awards trail. So let's start f- first with um, the film that won Best Picture, Shakespeare in Love. I will start by saying that um, it's one of my favorite films, and part of that is that my daughter and I have seen it. I know I keep bringing up Emma, but it's one of the movies that we both watch together a lot and quote to each other all the time since we know all the lines. So it means a lot to me on that level, but I also think just purely on an artistic level, I think that it's a magical combination of perfect writing, perfect acting, perfect directing with a great uh, score, a wonderful message about art and love, and you know a lot of really great Shakespeare references and... Uh, the funny thing about Shakespeare in Love that I found out, uh, it wasn't the favorite heading in in the early part of the race because Saving Private Ryan was considered the front runner, and so much so that Kenneth Turan even predicted it in his weekly column for the L.A. Times to predict to win Best Picture. But just as the Oscar race was starting, people noticed the buzz for uh, Shakespeare in Love, which had more nominations than Saving Private Ryan. No one at that point when Turan posted his um, predictions, probably very, not very many people had even seen um, um, Shakespeare in Love, right? Because Shakespeare no, in Love was, was released in, on, at Christmas. It was a Christmas movie, right? And Saving Private Ryan had been out all summer. It was, Yeah, that's true, mm-hmm. but it was also a different season. Remember, the Oscars were in March then, so mm-hmm. um, when it came time to predicting the Oscars, yeah, people had already seen it. A lot of people, mm-hmm. it was already really popular by then. It's... Um, it had already, you know, hit the box office and everything. We, we, we can't fathom what things were like back then because nowadays everything happens before the end of December. But back then, you, your movies opened and then the Oscar race started to get decided. So mm-hmm. people had seen it. It was... Um, I see now. It was a mid. It was a mid-December release, and so the, the definitely uh, the screeners had gone out in November, and all of the critics had seen it for the critics awards and everything in late November and early December. So you're right; everybody has seen it. But maybe the thing about can I finish? The thing about um, Shakespeare in Love is that uh, Harvey Weinstein actually was brought in to um, to to make some repairs on the script and the story, and he changed it in, in some significant ways. Uh, they made it. He made it more romantic. He's He's um, responsible for bringing on Ben Affleck, who was really popular at the time. Armageddon was like the number one movie of the year. And um, actually the film had been um, originally cast with Julia Roberts like eight years before. And she wouldn't do it unless Daniel Day-Lewis had signed on. Well, he he didn't want to do it, so she she, um, abandoned the project. And it took them years to get it made after that. And uh, they had it rewritten, and Harvey came on as producer, and he really did change it a lot. 
they ended up, John Madden shot several versions of the ending before he finally settled on the ending that it has now, and that happens to be one of the best endings of any movie. So it's just funny how many happy accidents were involved in getting Shakespeare in Love from page to screen. It's a it's a common story when it comes to popular movies. You think of Casablanca that was sort of an accident as well. Right. In terms of the casting and in terms of the writing, it was just everything just happened to come together at the right time at the right place, and it was what people wanted, and it became a classic. And Shakespeare in Love has a wonderful line in it which says, everything will turn out. How will it? I don't know. It's a mystery. And And it's so funny because it's so true about art, especially movies and plays, and even songs and sometimes paintings and photographs is, I don't know, it's a mystery. Sometimes all of the elements come into place and, and you create magic. And, and you can't repeat it. You try to, you know, do exactly as you did before. But it just, you can't, you know, it can't, lightning doesn't strike twice like that. Can you imagine one change, or are you trying to imagine it the way it was originally conceived with Julia Roberts and Daniel Day-Lewis? And it may have been a good movie that way, but you can't imagine it being the movie that you love. Right. So so Shakespeare in Love ended up winning Best Picture, and um, Steven Spielberg, which we'll get to Saving Private Ryan next, ended up winning Best Director. He also won at the DGA. Um, and Shakespeare in Love won how many Oscars, Michael? Seven. And how many was it nominated for? 13. 14, right. No, 13. 13. 13. Right. That's one of the few movies to um, be nominated with 13, to win with 13 nominations. And Saving Private Ryan won five. If Saving Private Ryan had won by Best Picture as it was expected to do, they would have tied. It would have been six and six for both of them. But as it turned out, you know, Saving Private Ryan only won five. It's interesting to me because when you look at snarky lists of Oscar snubs and worst Oscar choices, uh, Shakespeare in Love is often near the top of those lists. And uh, those people are just wrong. It's I guess rewatching it again, it's a terrific movie. It's it's it, the biggest sin against it is that it seems a little bit light, but because it's a romantic comedy, but it's so smart and it's so witty and it's so literate that that makes up for the general lightness of it. There's, it's an unparalleled, I think, movie of its kind and a, and a perfect entertainment. And it's better than the movie that everybody expected to win, which we'll talk about in a minute. Yeah. And the great thing about what anchors Shakespeare in Love is something you don't see in the movies anymore. Although, as much as I bitch about Jennifer Lawrence and Silver Lang's playbook, I have to admit that her performance anchored that movie for me. But, um, but, but Gwyneth Paltrow and Judi Dench are, you know, the really strong elements that make Shakespeare in Love more serious than it would have ordinarily been you know a lot of the actors in it are expert comedy actors they're so funny i think ben affleck is one of the funniest ones in it and jeffrey rush and you know um uh, uh you know who we were just talking about last week um rupert everett uh, plays christopher marlowe who is um shakespeare's nemesis and in fact is shakespeare views him as you know the writer that's getting all the acclaim and the much better writer and shakespeare's kind of hovering in his absence and they have that great audition scene where everybody who comes in reads a <laughs> reads a poem from Christopher Marlowe, and they're just sitting there listening to one Christopher Marlowe after another Christopher Marlowe after another. Finally, in comes Gwyneth Paltrow, and she says, "You know, she wants to to read a poem by you know the best the best writer in in the in the town." And they're and they're all just like yawning, expecting 
another Christopher Marlowe, and she starts in with this beautiful Shakespeare sonnet. May I begin, sir? Your name? Thomas Kent. I, I would like to do a speech by a writer who commands the heart of every player. What light is light if Sylvia be not seen? What joy is joy if Sylvia be not by? Unless it be to think that she is by and feed upon the shadow of perfection. Except I be by Sylvia in the night. There is no music in the nightingale. Unless I look on Sylvia in the day, there is no day for me to look upon. She is my essence, and I leave to be if I be not... Take off your hat. My hat? Where'd you learn how to do that? I... Let me see you. Take off your hat. Are you my, my Shakespeare? Wait there. Wait there! And that's the thing about Shakespeare in Love at the end of the day, is that once you hear that music of Shakespeare's language, you swoon. Because these guys that made this movie understand how to read Shakespeare, and most of the time actors don't. And they, Mark Norman, who wrote the screenplay, did a great job already with the foundation, but to bring Tom Stoppard in to do the to do the polish on it was genius because Tom Stoppard is such a witty, intelligent, literate guy himself. He really, like, like you say, he understands the rhythms and he understands the, the, um, the, the significance and the depth of, of Shakespeare and was able to match it, was able to match it seamlessly. Hmm. Yeah, there's one, my favorite scene in it is, is a scene that I watch over and over again and never get bored of it. In fact, I can't ever get bored of that movie and I've seen it hundreds, well, I don't know, maybe a hundred times or so, but... <laughs> The way that, that they weave in reading and rehearsing of the play with with the romance between Shakespeare and Viola, and they do it th- you know three times during the, the movie, and, and one time is when they actually perform the play Romeo and Juliet, but you don't know if they're really talking to each other or if they're in the play, because it's so close to the kind of romance they're experiencing, this love story. Dang. If he be married, my grave is like to be my wedding bed. No, do not go. I must. I must. But soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon, who is already sick and pale with grief that thou, her maid, art far more fair than she. Oh, well. Yes, yeah, some of it speakable. It is my lady. Oh, it is my love. Oh, that she knew she were. The brightness of her cheek would shame those stars as daylight doth a lamp. Her eyes in heaven would through the airy region stream so bright that birds would sing and think it were not night. See how she leans her cheek upon her hand. 
Oh, that I were a glove upon that hand, that I might touch that cheek. I me. Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy Deny father. Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Or if thou wilt not, be but sworn my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. Shall I hear more, or shall I speak at this? What man art thou that thus bespringed in night, so stumblest on my counsel? By a name, I know not how to tell thee who I am. My name, dear saint, is hateful to myself, because it is an enemy to thee. Had I it written, I would tear the word. The orchard walls are high and hard to climb, and the place death, considering who thou art. If any of my kinsmen find thee here, if they do see thee, they will murder thee. Alack, there lies more peril in thine eye than twenty of their swords. Look thou but sweet, and I am proof against their enmity. But not for the world they saw thee here. I have night's cloak to hide me from their eyes, and but thou love me, let them find me here. Good night, good night, as sweet repose and rest come to thy heart. As that within my breast. Oh, wilt thou leave me so unsatisfied? That's my line. Oh, it is mine too. Oh, wilt thou leave me so unsatisfied? What satisfaction canst thou have tonight? The exchange of thy love's faithful vow for mine. My bounty is as boundless as the sea. My love is deep. The more I give to thee, the more I have. Madam, I hear some noise within. Dear love, adieu. Juliet, anon, good nurse. Anon, good nurse. Sweet Montague, be true. Stay but a little. I will come again. Stay but a little. I will come again. Oh, blessed, blessed night. I'm afraid. Being a knight, all this is but a dream. Too flattering, sweet, to be substantial. It was so clever to do it that way, to, to imagine what Shakespeare would have been like if he had been in love and what might have prompted him to write a play like, like Romeo and Juliet, uh, when it's so uncharacteristic of the other things that he's written. And to, to take that and have it intercut with these incredibly passionate scenes between Joe Fiennes and Gwyneth Paltrow, I mean, I don't know what was happening with her, but she is unlike, she's more raw and more emotional than she's in any movie. And watching them together, they just have such great charisma and woven in with Shakespeare's language. It's just, it's mind-blowing. I mean, you never see Shakespeare like that. It's usually so boring. The way they try to use Shakespeare's language to punch up the romantic scenes while this, while simultaneously trying to explain possibly what the inspiration for that language was. Right. It, it's speculation, but it's still it's still imagining that, wow, this cat must have really been in love to be writing stuff like this. Exactly. And you don't necessarily get that when you're watching a Shakespeare play. Even Romeo and Juliet, you... The, the actors are always so intimidated by the language. They don't connect with it. But when you're really, you know Viola and, and Shakespeare in this movie. And so when, you know, when he talks about, um, that, you know, oh, if I could be the hand that touched that cheek. And then one of the actors hears that line and just says, I, me, because it's just so, 
you know, it's so emotional and so sexy, uh, that just that line. And, and when you hear her, especially Gwyneth Paltrow reading Shakespeare uh, from Romeo and Juliet, lines you've heard a million times, all of a sudden you understand what those lines really mean. She has such an impeccable British accent, for one thing. I mean, that's why it's crazy, in a way, to, to try to imagine Julia Roberts in that role. Because oh, I can't imagine Julia Roberts even attempting a British accent and succeeding and, to, and attempting to do Shakespeare either. You know, she's just never, she's great for what she does, but she just never takes on those kinds of roles because she can't do it. Mm-hmm. She, did, she did that one movie, Mary Riley, where she tried to play a British maid or something, and it was a disaster, right? And she was mocked for her accent. But so, uh, so Gwyneth Paltrow has the accent, and she has the enunciation, and she has maybe maybe it, it's a more filtered through an American sensibility, her American her American brain. Maybe that's what makes it more easy for us to understand or to grasp. Yeah. Also, you know, it's what she was going through then, too. You know, she was dating Ben Affleck at the time from 97 off and on for the next couple of years. She was on and off again with Ben Affleck. So there was a lot of real-life emotion and romance for her right there on the set. And hadn't she just been dumped by Brad Pitt, or hadn't they just broken up right when Shakespeare in Love started, I thought? Mm-hmm. I think so. Right. She yeah. also did a lot of movies that year. I mean, I don't know if you guys looked it up, but... Um, so many Gwyneth Paltrow movies. It was a, there was a Perfect Murder was that year, and Sliding Doors was that year. Um, let me just quickly look it up. Somebody else talk for a minute while I. Mm-hmm. And both of those movies are really uh, underrated. I think I like both of them. She's she's and she makes them b- both. You know, I I, for, I didn't realize they all came out the same year. She's Great Expectations was that year too. Yeah, and Hush. And, yeah. She's a, she's an actress who takes a lot of crap, and I think maybe some of it comes from the the teary speech that she gave when she won, because I think her it was her grandmother that had died recently. I personally bought it 100%. Maybe I'm just a sucker, but I thought it was completely genuine, and it was a really sweet, one of my favorite Oscar moments. And you hear people talking about it like, you know, she was just acting and blah, 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 blah. And I, I want those people to just crawl up in a corner and die. Her her father had been really ill all year long, Bruce Paltrow. That's what it and, was. And then also her her grandfather, who didn't make it to the Oscars, but he was he was he was there at the after parties, had stomach cancer that year. So she was on the verge or fearful of losing both of the men in her life, you know, from her family. So that's you know, who, who wouldn't break down with your family there in the audience? They've they have given you the um, the back ground to be able to do what you're doing stand up on that stage and they're sitting there and you've been through so many trials trials you know uh, medical problems and everything that year who wouldn't be emotional right and how refreshing especially now since it's become more so in terms of um actors being canned and and guarded and you know just speaking from a script to see somebody being open and emotional and human a little bit it was it was a really neat moment yeah, I think she at the time had been sort of taken apart for being Brad Pitt's girlfriend, as the women who tend to, you know, who who are in his life do, because he's such a big star. And um, but she hadn't really done anything big before she won this Oscar. I think that was part of it. She before that, you know, was Heart Eight and Seven, and you know, these aren't these weren't really strong leading roles. And 1998 is when she really burst forth. But um, particularly with Shakespeare in Love, I mean, I look at all those roles she played that year, and she's gorgeous in Great Expectations if you've never seen it. She's just like a vanilla ice cream cone. But, and she's, she's really a good actress in all of these. But Shakespeare in Love, she's really great. 
And I watch it back, and I watch Elizabeth, and people say Kate Blanchett should have won, but I really disagree. I think that, that uh, Gwyneth Paltrow is mostly what makes Shakespeare in Love really, really work. And Ryan touched on it a little earlier about her Americanness. It's unusual for an American to handle that language so well. You know, you, you expect it from Kate Blanchett. She's not English, but she's Australian. That's close enough. And so she can she can roll with that sort of thing. It seems to be ingrained in them. But it's a little surprising to see somebody American pull it off, and she does an excellent job of it. And it's a better movie than Elizabeth. Right. And, and we should say that, you know, we acknowledge that, I acknowledge that, that this is considered one of the greatest Oscar upsets of all time. If you look at any of those lists, they will always put this one up there, right at the top. Saving Private Ryan should have won. And before we seg into Saving Private Ryan, I'll just say that that um, I don't, I couldn't, if I was watching those two movies, and any movie nominated for Best Picture that year, and then I saw Shakespeare in Love, it would, it, there would be no contest. I mean, just one movie is a perfect film, and the rest of them, as great as they are, you know, and as wonderful as they are, they're not perfect in that same way of magic happened. And, and maybe you can say Harvey Weinstein did it. Maybe he knows audiences so well. He made it the movie that it was, and he made it into a hit. Whatever they did, it is a solid, wonderful film, and it's every bit as good today as it was in 1998. Sorry, that's just the way it is. No, I reckon, you know, sometimes we talk about, like, we were there, we remember it. And this, this is the year, I've said that the Oscars were losing me in the mid-90s. I was so frustrated with the Oscars, I didn't even watch them for three or four years in a row. I don't, didn't even see the mid-90s at all. But this year, I remember vividly, I was in, uh, probably people are tired of hearing me say that I was in Bangkok, but I was in, in Thailand, it was 12, year, 12 hours time difference, and so the Oscars came on at 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. And I took off work that day. The Oscars had moved to Sunday night, so it was a Monday morning. I just remember it so clearly. We had seen uh, Saving Private Ryan um, in the theater. It, it had already come and gone. And we had been hearing all about Saving Private, uh, Saving Private Ryan and how it was you know, the front runner to win and everything. And that sounded reasonable. It sounded like, you know, that could, that could happen and that would be fine because we knew what a great movie it was. But then we started hearing about Shakespeare in Love and wondered what the heck it could be that it, would, that it was get, um, getting such great buzz and, and gathering so much heat. My partner came home with um, a video cassette bootleg of it because it wasn't due to come out in Thailand until like the, in the mid-April. And he came home with a videotape that he had found like three or four days before the Oscars. And so we were able to see it and were blown away by it. Just like now we get it. Now we understand why people are saying that this could, that it could be an upset. If when you, like you said, when you see the two movies back to back, when you see them together, for me, it's no contest. Saving um, Private Ryan is a great movie. There's no doubt. But Shakespeare in Love is one of my favorite best picture winners of all time. Oh, me too. And I, I also love that even though I'm not a Shakespeare expert, uh, what little I do know about Shakespeare, I love you know, I love discovering and uncovering all the hidden clues in that movie, all the references like to Hamlet and you know to other mm -hmm. other plays of his. And it's a um, it's it's a it's a send up of Hollywood. You know, it's one of those typical Oscar movies like The Artist or Argo that that makes jokes about modern Hollywood and it does it really well all the way through the whole movie. You know, like I'm the money, um, or they say Ned, mm, he's wrong for it. Like they just make all these continual jokes throughout, and and the more you get them, the funnier they are every time. And uh, What's funny is because you, you pe people in Hollywood see that and they've heard it before and they can say, this has been going on for 500 years. This was going on in, in, <laughs> in 1590. 
Yeah. Right? Act, actors have never changed. Yeah. Right? Uh-huh. Actors have never changed. I think of the nurse. He's like, what's the play about? Well, there's this nurse. <laughs> like and then Ned, um, Ben Affleck as Ned is so great. You know, when he comes in, what is the play and what is my part? And he's just so, his ego is so overblown. And what's what's the play called? Mercutio. <laughs> you know? And he's perfect because when you read when you read Romeo and Juliet, there's this long thing of Mercutio, who has like basically kind of nothing to do with the story. He's there, but like he has this long sword fight, and he's this big part, but he's not one of Romeo, and he's not Juliet. So it's funny that they would he would work that in to have have to cast it with a big star. You know, so they had he had to write a big part for Mercutio because he had mm-hmm. Ned playing it. You know, so it's it's wonderful, and 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 Rupert Everett is hysterical, and I love how everybody's always giving Shakespeare his titles and his ideas all throughout. You know, <laughs> you know, he's like Romeo, he is Italian. <laughs> you know, so. Anyway, that's Shakespeare in Love. We love it, and and as it is always on Oscar podcast when we. Um, uh, talk about a movie we love. It's always hard to articulate all the reasons why. But um, well, let's talk about Saving Private Ryan next. Um, we just hit our twenty-minute mark, so we're, we're being very disciplined here. This is great. Um, yeah. So Saving Private Ryan, uh, I want rewatch that. Did anybody else rewatch it? Yep. Yeah, I saw it. Yeah, we all three <laughs> saw it. Um, I, I was struck by how good it was, how much better it was than I had thought it. When I first saw it, I really thought, oh, this is such a sappy movie. It's great for the first. You know, 30 minutes, but then it becomes just sappy, sappy, sappy. But I don't know what happened either that I changed or I've watched Spielberg grow as a filmmaker or times have changed, movies have become different. But I was really blown away by, first of all, that the first 30 minutes uh, is mind-blowing. It's not just something you can write off by saying the first 30 minutes are great. I mean, they're really, really great. And there are some haunting scenes throughout of, of death and killing and, and uh, war fighting. It's not just sappy scenes like I thought it was. but So I, I have to acknowledge that uh, it, it was a formidable, formidable challenger to Shakespeare in Love. And I think that the Academy got it right when they gave Spielberg director and Shakespeare in Love picture. I think that's a fair compromise to acknowledge what, what Spielberg did with Saving Private Ryan, which is truly exceptional. Filmmaking. I think it's a little unfair to John Madden, who did a great job with all of those actors. But yeah, it's. It, I'm glad that Saving Private Ryan did get something. It's not my favorite Spielberg movie. I like it better than I used to. Um, I'm a huge World War II nerd, so a lot of it is like catnip to me. But um, the the bookend story never really did a lot for me, and the and the whole framing story, the whole means for moving these soldiers through the war didn't ever really work for me. I like the individual moments. All of the set pieces are great. It's just the tying together of them is a little too neat and a little too clever for my taste. It's a little too high concept, and I would like something a little raw, maybe, and a little edgier. For me, the only sappy part that I can recall, the only thing that stuck in, stuck with me as being sappy, were the bookended, with the bookended part, with about the you know the going back to the grave to the to Arlington or not Arlington, but the cemetery in France, you know, and to see and that part was the part that almost killed it for me, you know. Well, you know that was this. You know, I'm saying that ending kind of reminded me of Schindler's List because it, it kind of, they kind of uh, had the actors with people who. They, they portrayed and it kind of had the same similar type of ending this time he's at a graveyard looking down at the guy who saved his life Mm -hmm. 
I thought of Schindler's List because we had this discussion when Schindler's List year came up. I'm a fan of the ending of Schindler's List, and I'm not a fan of the ending of this, and I was trying to figure out why, and I don't know why, and I think part of why, though, is because the ending of Schindler's List is real, whereas this is made up. Even though it's inspired by actual events, the the story and the characters are are created, and it, and it rings hollow, and the movie is so intense all the way through that it's just a little too much. If they just dialed it back a little bit, I think it would have worked a lot better. You know, the, the one scene that I think was kind of sappy for me was the scene where Matt Dillon's character is telling a story about his brothers, and um, he's saying this, I, I guess, this moment where they something's going on, and they're and he's like, he's kind of laughing, but crying. Yeah. I, I just didn't find that that scene to me was not that one scene. I thought, that, I thought that worked really well to sort of develop this character that we'd spent the whole movie trying to find. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense, sir. Why? Why, me? Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Is that what they're supposed to tell your mother when they send her another folded American flag? Tell her that when you found me, I was here and I was with the only brothers that I have left and that there's no way I was going to desert them. I think she'll understand that. There's no way I'm leaving this bridge. And I thought Damon did a really good job of playing it off in a almost imp- improvisational sort of natural kind of way. I'm I'm already kind of a Damon fan anyway, so it, it was an easy stretch for me to buy into that. But I, I, I can sort of see what you're saying. And also, I just want to say that um, about the story, you know, is is it's kind of based on an actual event that happened back in the, during World War II. But this was like four brothers. And they all perished. And I think because of that, um, the government changed the policy where if there's like three or four brothers that live in one family, they have to leave at least one brother at home. Mm-hmm. In World War II, they sent everybody to war. They didn't care. Every brother or whatever they all went, went and served in some form of the But when brothers were killed during World War II, um, they changed the policy a little bit. I, and I may be wrong. I think they may have done it back to the Civil War, but I know now um, they cannot take a certain amount of members from a family if we were to get into a, a major war. They have to leave a male member at home or something like that. Right, you're right about that. And I think it was, uh, I forget the name of the family, the, 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 for the four siblings that all perish. But, uh, the Sullivan brothers. The Sullivan brothers, there you go. Yeah. I, think mm-hmm. the, the, I think the law, um, the, the law changed after that happened. Right. And I agree with Craig. I mean, the, the fact that they changed that reality and they turned Damon into it, it's a really difficult role for any for an actor to play and for, for a character to be in the movie, to be the guy who causes the death of so many other people just so he can be saved. You know, that's a pretty, that's a pretty tough position to put in, a, a character in and to put an actor in to make him feel like that he was worth it, to worth the price that was paid. Right. I mean, it, it makes sense for the ending. It really does because... I think there were how many brothers? Four brothers 
that were killed in the movie? Three, I think. Three, okay. So three brothers. So I understand the how the ending can be. I meant, like you said, um, they risked their lives for just one person to send him home. Mm-hmm. So I can see him going back to France over the grave, and all the emotions are coming out and stuff like that. I mean, the, the ending does make sense to me. Mm-hmm. No, because I think I would do the same thing if somebody risked their life for me. And then years later, I go and pay homage to them. I mean, I, I'd probably do the same thing myself. But as Craig said, the fact—I mean—you're not going to feel like the ending of Schindler's List is sappy because you're looking at a thousand people who wouldn't exist if Schindler had not done what he did. How can that be sappy? Because those are real lives, real people. Really, those are real souls that were saved, and and whole, and entire generations that you know are the descendants. But to manipulate and to create and fabricate a situation where you're being told that this is supposed to have the same sort of impact on you, it does feel manipulative to me. The, the framing device. So, do you think the film would have would have started better if it has not had that beginning where he's walking towards the graveyard? Instead, it just starts with the war. Oh, for me, yeah. But I mean, I'm, just, I'm nothing. Does, nothing against Saving Private Ryan. I think it's a fantastic movie. And if, and if Shakespeare and Love had not been around that year, it would have been a fantastic Best Picture winner. I mean, I would have been perfectly happy for it to win Best Picture until I saw Shakespeare and Love. For me, it boils down to the fact that I don't, I don't buy the fact that they would send ten guys into France to find some one person just for a PR reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, the, yeah. the thing that bothered me about it was I, I, this is so awful. But Ed Burns, like he, his glib kind of humor and his tone, it just to me, it sort of set the whole movie off balance, and it made it seem like uh, not a serious. As, as what they were going through, and I have a feeling that if um, if he hadn't been cast in that role or if it had been a different kind of character, I probably would have, you know, I think the film for me would have been better all the way See, around. he worked for me, and they all did, and I we talked about it earlier. It, it felt like he was sort of illustrating the, the sort of the gallows humor and the sort of the black humor that people have who face death every day. They're a little bit, you know, it, it seems crass to us on the outside who aren't experiencing that, but it's how the people who are in the middle of it survive it. And that's, yeah. to me, what works about the movie in terms of it, it feels, even though the story is fake, it feels like a realistic impression of what being in the war was like. Right, except for, for me, I feel like uh, he was trying to go for Harrison Ford and Star Wars kind of swagger and I think there were better Josh Brolin for instance would have been great in that part you know or somebody who was a little less you know cocky not cocky kind of like you know pampered you know east coast boy like there's just something about him that didn't didn't fit the kind of part he was cast as That's but you know if you watch a lot of world war ii films especially got the ones from the 40s and the 50s they always had a character like that in those films that's you, what bothers me, though. Well, go ahead and finish before well, you're saying no, that. No. Usually better actors, though. Than the- mm-hmm. you know, but that's all I'm saying is that he kind of fit the character that you would usually see in a World War II film. They always mm-hmm. have to have that one character that is like that. Yeah, I don't think he pulled it off. I, 
Yeah, and see, I don't even think I think that ruins it when you when you say that you always have to have that character. To me, that's when it becomes trite. That's when it becomes a cliche. That's when the whole gang of the guys who went to save him, all seven or eight or ten of them who went to save Private Ryan, there are all these different types that you've seen over and over and over in war movies. Yeah. But they just it's plug and play. You just right. plug them in because you've got to have the guy from the Bronx. You've got to have the Jewish guy. You've got to have you know the artistic intellectual guy. You've got to have all these different types. And right. so I, we've seen that. So many times before in, in war movies that it seemed almost like a throwback. It sounds like yeah. I don't like the movie, but I really do like the movie. Yeah, I think well, the only person that he Spielberg's, didn't... Um, go ahead, Michael. I'm going to say the only kind of person that he didn't throw in there was a black guy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, God. <laughs> and the gay guy. There's no gay soldier. <laughs> it was Don't Ask, Don't Tell back then. I, I think it was... Because I know there were black guys... Spielberg being a huge movie fan, he's, he's, he's trying to relive some of the old classic war movies. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I recall... I was a huge fan of The Longest Day when I was a little kid. I mean, watching it now, it's almost unwatchable. It's boring and stupid. But <laughs> I think Spielberg, he simultaneously trying to be honest he's trying to be sentimental and he's also trying to have a throwback to the movies that he grew up loving and so i'm kind of okay with the fact that he's using a stock series of characters especially since he he pulls back the layers on those characters pretty well throughout the course of the film and they wind up you end up feeling differently about them than you did when you first meet them you know speaking of a long day you know it's, it's funny that you mentioned that movie because before Saving Private Ryan, that movie has been on every list as one of the greatest war films ever made. Before Saving Private Ryan came out. And then Saving Private Ryan comes out, and now that movie is considered by many as being one of the greatest war films ever made. Well, so is The Longest Day, though. That hasn't come No, no, no. But I'm saying before Saving Private Ryan, The Longest Day was like the best war film ever made. And then Saving Private Ryan came and kind of took a little bit of the glory from that film. But yeah. Longest Day it, it is still a great movie. That it, yeah, up the ante, especially with the first thirty minutes of that film. Yeah, the most I intense. mean that's the thing about Spielberg is he takes your breath away. He's such a ridiculously talented director. You know, he's not as good with the. He's like Cameron in this way. He's not as good with the. Although in Lincoln, he he definitely succeeded in this. But he's not as good with the characters and the writing. I don't think as he is with. Not as good, better than most, just not as good as he is with the the other stuff, the pure directing, and especially in the war scenes in Saving Private Ryan. They are stunningly beautiful, and I think a lot of his fans were let down by Lincoln because they expected him to treat the Civil War the same way that he treated World War II in, um, in Saving Private Ryan, and, and I was struck by those scenes the death scenes the fighting scenes the way tom and by the way tom hanks totally great in this movie totally fucking great he plays a captain just like he is in captain phillips but what an actor is tom hanks i mean i just can't believe we're we're in the tom hanks era right now 1998 he's, he's right at the top of his game and he is great in saving private ryan he's to me and i didn't notice this the first time i saw it because actors have evolved matt matt damon has evolved they've all evolved Mm-hmm. And you go back and you look and you remember, wow, Tom Hanks, damn, he's great. He's great in fucking Saving Private Ryan. But just when he's, like, looking around and, and as the bullets are whizzing by and the dazed look on his face and the slow motion violence, is, Spielberg is, like, he's great at it. He's right up there with John Ford for sure. 
Mm-hmm. He's an amazing say. visual storyteller. I think in the case of this movie, he didn't have the best script, and that's what fails the movie, not Spielberg. I think Spielberg, just the way he tells the story without words, he's actually better off when people aren't talking sometimes because right. he's just got this amazing, innate sense of illustrating things just by showing you rather than telling you. And it, it, he tends to fall down a little bit when he has the temptation to tell you. Exactly. Exactly, and he does a lot of the time do that. He, I thought he, he sort of fought it in Lincoln a lot, you know, which is what makes Lincoln such a great movie, but it's absolutely there in Saving Private Ryan, which is a fucking great movie. Can we just say it again? It's a great yeah. movie. Whether or not it won Best Picture, I, I, I can't tell you that the Academy voters would have voted for it over, over Shakespeare in Love. There's just no way that they would because one movie – you know, moves you on a grand scale, and the other moves you too, but just not in that same euphoric way. Mm-hmm. Well, well, there think- are pl- there are so many people though who do who did who, who were so blown away by Saving Private Ryan when it first came out. I remember my my father wrote me a letter about it. He wrote me a letter because he was so touched by because it was a whole that was when the greatest generation thing was all was hitting its peak when uh, Tom Brokaw came out with that book and everything and that was just a big deal around the country that year remember what these men did for us they saved the world you know and that's why it had the 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 weight and importance that people just thought that it couldn't lose because of for that reason because of the gravity of it yes absolutely the thing that but the thing about it though is it strikes me is that it, it wasn't men who were doing it for the most part it was kids and that's mm. what is stunning to me. They were kids who threw themselves into this cause. They must have known that most of them were not going to come back, and yet they did it anyway. And you don't you don't see that level of sacrifice anymore. And that's the one area where that movie definitely has a leg up on Shakespeare in terms of it. It feels more important. Mm-hmm. And just, even if they go ahead. Even if they weren't kids, as like Tom Hanks was was the older guy, he was he was just a school teacher back home though. He was not a soldier. He 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 just got thrown into the war because everyone was being thrown into the war, and that's what made the the impact. Like Sasha was talking about the the his his stunned the stunned look on his face when he realized what he had, was into, you know, all the more impactful you know when you when you know what he the peaceful life that they came from when and that's why i like the very beginning of save it private saving private ryan it's almost has like a norman rockwell quality about it you know back home in the states mm-hmm. to show just how idyllic it was in america and what what people were had left behind in order to be thrown into this hell yeah absolutely and what you were saying before about him as an as a just a regular guy there, there's that scene where he's I think he's talking to, um, I can't remember the actor's name, so I won't even try and struggle with it, but he's trying to explain how he does what he does, and he's basically realizing that he is responsible for the death of, you know, maybe 100 kids, but by sacrificing those 100 kids, he's maybe saving thousands of people, and that's what gets him going, and that's the sort of thing that sort of is weighing on its mind the entire time through the entire film, and it's mm-hmm. it's... It's amazing to think about for any of us who have never faced combat like that. Right. I hope we never have to. I mean, it was just, I we mean, don't I keep... have to, but there are kids right now who are. You know, I, I know, mean, it's not, it's, not so much anymore. But in, in terms of Iran and Afghanistan, or Iraq and Afghanistan, it's 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 gotten to the point where we're removed from it, and yet this is still happening. And I think it's it's important to be reminded of it. 
I remember uh, those images from the film where those guys, where that one guy was on the ground, at, like in the beginning, and all his guts were out, and he was just screaming, Mama, Mama's calling out his mother. And then he did that again when um, Rabisi died, and he was calling out for his mother. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just, it's, it's just, Steven Spielberg really knows how to tug at your heart. Oh yeah, that one you scene know? at the beginning that I was talking about the Norman Rockwell quality, where the where the the mother is at the sink and she sees a car coming from the distance, she steps out onto the porch, and her she just collapses, her legs fall out from under her, and she just drops to her knees on the porch. It just broke, it breaks my heart even to think about you know even to put it into words. That's a, a fantastic scene, and Spielberg can do that like nobody else. You know, he can. Norm, Norman Rockwell destroyed by war. Mm, yeah, yeah, he's great, and it's you know it's it's a wonderful movie. I I think that um, it didn't need to win Best Picture. Sure, it would have been a worthy Best Picture winner, but Shakespeare in Love is also a worthy Best Picture winner. It's kind of one of those head and heart things where mm-hmm. the Oscars always find themselves in this predicament of head versus heart. And I can tell you that you know a lot of people would would be have a hard time sitting through Saving Private Ryan, and it is no effort at all to sit through Shakespeare in Love. And I think that that therein lies the difference a lot of times with mm-hmm. masterpieces versus um, entertaining films that are more entertaining than they are uh, a, ma- a masterpiece. And but there's something to be said for an entertaining movie. I know that I'm always speaking in. in defense of the masterpiece over the entertaining fluff or whatever but it is not easy to make something that that you know really pleases a lot of people and mm-hmm. it's not easy to do that and Sorry. Go, ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, Shakespeare in Love is far from fluff, though. It has so much to say about about creativity and art and love and and where where and uh, creativity springs from. <laughs> and it's very literate and it's very smart movie. It's not it's not as if it was a you know. I, I won't even name the movie that I'm thinking of right now, but but there there you know there there is fluff that gets nominated for best picture, right? And I but don't this think was it not is. one of them. Yeah, I definitely don't yeah. think it's fluff. Yeah. Uh, it's obviously yeah. one of my favorite films. Yeah, but I'm just right. saying that, that, that when you're talking about best picture, I'm always saying how you should reward high achievement, and I you know I do agree with that. I think that um, I have to revise some of the things I've said about Saving Private Ryan over the years, which I've sort of written it off unfairly i thought um for being for falling apart after that first 30 minutes it's really not true it doesn't fall apart after that it has a lot more to it it is probably other than the tiny bit of parts where he gets overly sentimental it is it it can be called a masterpiece i don't think shakespeare in love is a masterpiece i do think saving private ryan is i myself can't help the fact that i love that movie Shakespeare in Love I love it I would have a really hard time deciding best picture but I don't think either choice is wrong I'm glad that they did what they did. I think it was. I think. It, I think it was one of the most justified splits in Oscar history. The, a movie that you love wins Best Picture. A director who you have to admire and respect wins Best Director. That's the way it should. If you're going to do it, if there are two movies that are so deserving, I think that's the way to do it. I like to see. I don't. I wouldn't have liked to see either one of them sweep. You know, I wouldn't have liked to see Saving Private Ryan sweep and win everything, or vice versa. Um, Shakespeare in Love either. You know, I'm. I'm glad that they divided it up almost equally. And I'm sorry. To, to hear, I have heard that Spielberg was really demoralized and disappointed that, that Saving Private Ryan didn't win everything. But he should be happy that what he what he what he achieved and what he won and what he what he did with that movie. I just love how ambitious he is, and I hope he yeah. continues to to set the bar so high as a filmmaker. You know, it's just great. 
I wonder how much of his perceived disappointment was just because of expectations, because everybody assumed that it was going to win Best Picture, and the fact that it didn't, you know, and also he's thinking of all the people who worked on the film who could have celebrated mm-hmm. in terms of winning it. Because I, I, he's, he's already got a Best Picture and Best Director Oscar, so it's not like... It's not like he was desperate for it. I, I, I sure. I'm, I'm hesitant about how disappointed he really was. And I think he was more surprised that... because that was the narrative. That was what people expected, and it was weird. And and everybody asks him about it because it didn't win when everybody thought it was going to win. Well, the funny thing is, is if I had been blogging at the time, doing my website, which I did start the following year after that, um, I probably would have backed Saving Private Ryan as for the win because after seeing it again and knowing what went into it and knowing what it means in terms of film history and our history it does seem like the bigger achievement the grander achievement does that make it a better movie I don't know but in terms of winning Oscars that's the kind of thing I don't blame them for picking for picking Shakespeare in Love that's what I loved about my life before I started blogging about the Oscars because I could love a movie like Shakespeare in Love and not hate it, whereas now it's sort of like, oh my God, you know, this 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 Argo beat Lincoln, and and Argo's a perfectly fine movie. You know, I, I enjoyed it so much when I first saw it, I really did, and yet I have to be in this weird predicament of defending a different movie and wanting a different movie to win, and I kind of miss those That's... days. <laughs> That's the interesting thing, though, is that, you know, it's easy to criticize Shakespeare in Love for being light, but it's so much better than all of the lightweight choices that Oscars have made in the last few years. It's better than Argo. It's better than The Artist. It's better than The King's Speech. It's it, it's it's easy to dismiss it because it doesn't seem as important as Saving Private Ryan, but it's a terrific, entertaining picture. And sometimes that's the way Oscar goes. And Hollywood has often been about the escapism and the entertainment, and it's it's hard to get away from that. And, and Shakespeare, to me, is a case where it did, where Hollywood did that extremely well. I hear you, and I I agree. And now it is time to move on, says the moderator. (laughs) So we we had um, one of the weird things about 1998 was the best actor race. We can keep talking about best picture if you want. We have Thin Red Line, Life is Beautiful, and Elizabeth to talk about. Uh, Only one of us, I think, has revisited Life is Beautiful, and that's Craig. (laughs) Yeah, and I don't have anything to say about it. Okay, well, we can kind of talk about that in terms of the best a- actor race because it really was one of the weirdest best actor years. You had Saving Private Ryan, Tom Hanks. He's already won two Oscars by now. He's not going to win another one. The man who was deserving of the win, Ian McKellen in Gods and Monsters, who did not win and should have won. Nick Nolte in Affliction, he also could have won. And then you have Edward Norton in American History X. I mean, four powerhouse performances by these men. And then you get... I mean, I'm not saying... People didn't love Roberto Benigni and, and whatever. You know, he was funny. He was cute, whatever. It's just funny that he would win over these four guys. That's all. What's funny to me is that people think he's funny and cute. I mean, I cannot <laughs> see that. I cannot. To me, he's repulsive. I remember, like I said, I remember this Oscars so well. I had never heard of the guy before. I thought he was an embarrassment that night at the Oscars. And I thought the way he acted. And the more that I found out about him later, I found out that that's his persona that he puts on in public that is not even like his real way of acting because 
because I have heard in, in serious interviews he he doesn't speak broken English and he he doesn't act like a clown all the time. But I cannot understand why anybody would find that charming or funny or interesting or cute. You know, he's 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 disgusting to me. I really Ryan, you're going to get so torn up in the back comments. Back in the 80s when uh, Jim Jarmusch did Down by Law with Tom Waits and uh, I can't remember who else, and Roberto Benigni was in it, and he was this weird foreigner character, and he was just this charming, eternally optimistic, despite all of the horrible things that were happening to him character. And so I was already kind of a fan of his. And, uh, you know, Life is Beautiful was massively popular people loved that movie it made a shit ton of movie money all around the world and if you like that movie you like him and vice versa you, they're, they're inseparable because the movie is him and he is the movie and the fact that everybody loved that movie tells me that people love that guy and that character so even though I would have picked any one of the four other actors over him in a heartbeat, it doesn't really surprise me because the affection was so high for that movie. It was, and it was also, I mean, I remember noting at the time, not being an Oscar person particularly, but noting what a big star he was. It was kind of one of those things where you wanted to see what he would do once he got to the mic, and, you know... (laughs) He delivered. He delivered every time. Every time he won anything, he would... I mean, he wasn't just... He would do these outlandish things. You saw him, like, climb all over the seats and, you know, kiss people in the mouth and sit on their laps. And he was also so grateful to be making... He was so nice and so funny and talking about, you know, how he's the Italian Woody Allen and how much he loves American film. And it was not unlike Jean Dujardin in in The Artist, you know. He's the Italian Woody Allen. He's the Italian Jerry Lewis. <laughs> Ryan, you're going to get such a beat down in the comments for this. You know that. Right? I don't care. I cannot stand the guy at all. I mean, and the more the more I see him, and the more because I looked up on YouTube and things because I'd heard like I tried to find. There's a apparently he was at the Cannes Film Festival and he dropped down on the stage and kissed Martin Scorsese's shoes in front of everybody. And I wanted to What's try to find that. that. I, it just is so. It's just too much. It's just so. It's just so fakey for one thing. I just can't believe he's that a, anybody he's a could spaz, be. Spaz, but he's a Marxist spaz, so that's okay. <laughs> I didn't even that makes it okay. No, I don't think so. I, I cannot. I don't like that but type of weird, personality, you know. Weird. And the, the reason, um, I mean. Yeah, if you say that he was the movie, that's why I've never seen the movie and never intend to. I've never oh, seen it and never I, will. I, um, except for Down by Law, I can't stomach him. I'm, I'm similar to you in terms of my... Uh, he's not repulsive to me, but I'm sketchy on him. But he alternately worked brilliantly in that movie, watching it. There was times when you just wanted to... You just wanted to hug him because he's just so small, so unintimidating, and so open-faced and, and childlike. For me, the movie comes to a screeching halt after the first half when the when the real little kid shows up it's like he's already a little kid and i can deal with him but when the actual little kid shows up then i can't stand it anymore but the whole meet cute thing with him and nicoletta brashi is is actually it's actually pretty entertaining and and it won me over i can almost see that but but isn't that isn't that like a really strange clash to have in a concentration camp where they're facing well, that's dad. just it. The first half of the movie has nothing to do with that. The whole first half is him meeting this woman and wooing her with his bizarre 
crazy Italian person charms. And then the second half is them having a kid and then the Nazis come in and take over. And it's the second half that doesn't work for me. It's the first half that actually works really mm-hmm. pretty well. I might watch the first half sometime. Well, well see, I'm, I'm a novice, so I've never seen it. So I guess I'm going to have to. Of course, um, either I have a choice of subtitles or an English translation. You have to watch it in subtitles if you're going to watch it at all. But um, the thing is, is uh, yeah, I mean, that happened. Sometimes the Oscar mm. race gets taken taken over by a personality. And, I, I, you know, you just, what can you do but throw up your hands that um, that he beat Ian McKellen and Gods and Monsters? That, that one hurt particularly bad, I think. It, it's a bigger snub than, the, than Shakespeare in Love. I'm sorry yeah. to the haters of Shakespeare in Love, but Roberto Benigni beating those other four guys is ridiculous. It is. And I've been critical of Tom Hanks repeatedly in this podcast and over the years. I didn't like him in... I didn't like him in Forrest Gump, and I didn't like him in a lot of things, but he's really great in Saving Private Ryan, and he's... And even still, he's not as good as Ian McKellen or Nick Nolte or Edward Norton, and all of them should have beaten Roberto Benigni. I know. But especially Ian, Ian McKellen, because what a, what a monumental performance that was. That This was the year when I went from not being able to see any movies that were nominated for Oscars to suddenly everything was available for us to see. And we saw that movie several weeks before the Oscars, and I couldn't even believe it had been made, and I couldn't believe it was so good. And then at the Oscars, when you saw Bill Condon sitting there with his boyfriend, and they... And might have even kissed when he won the Oscar. I can't remember, but we were just, Tony and I were looking at each other, my partner and I were looking at each other like, what the heck has happened to the Oscars? All of a sudden, everybody is out. Everybody is out and gay and proud of it. How well, wonderful this is, you know? Yeah, except for the fact that um, Ian McKellen was an out gay man at the time, and he didn't win. I know. Yes, that's what it was so heartbreaking. It destroyed me that he didn't win. And, and I to could, this day, and no he, he was gay, playing an out gay man. Uh-huh, exactly. And to this day, no gay uh, out gay actor has ever won uh, an mm-hmm. Oscar that we know of. No, I say out. <laughs> no, but out. <laughs> out. Gay. But I mean, that's why that that's why it wrecked me, and that's probably why it, it makes Benini even more. You know, uh, I can't even look at him because I uh, because McKellen deserves so much more. And what you said, Sasha, the fact that I do believe what you say is true that people just want to see what he does when he gets up on stage. But what a shitty way! What a shitty reason to give an Oscar to somebody. Agreed. Right? I mean, I can't mm-hmm. I can't argue with you there. I don't. Mm-hmm. I can't defend that choice at all. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the worst decisions in Oscar history, frankly. Mm-hmm. I'm in the weird position of defending it and not liking it at the same time. I get it, but I don't like it. At the same time, you know, Gods and Monsters just left me depressed and sad. Yeah. And and it and I think sometimes Oscar turns away from those kind of movies, the movies that don't make them feel good. Right. And and mm-hmm. and I, I I don't know that I can always blame them for that because you know sometimes you want to watch a movie to feel ennobled or enlightened or mm-hmm. entertained or to turn your mood around you know and and Gods and Monsters just I was already in a bad mood when I watched it and it just left me feeling not quite suicidal but mm-hmm. you know just uh, wow hopeless. You know what was announced a couple of weeks ago, or that I just found out about it a couple of weeks ago? Bill Condon and Ian McKellen are, are making another movie together. It's called A Slight Trick of the Mind. It's a Sherlock Holmes story. He, Ian McKellen plays Sherlock Holmes when he's 93 years old. Only it's not a mystery. It's a it's a story about Sherlock Holmes looking back on his life and all of his regrets and everything. So you're going to love it, Craig. That's another great. one of those movies that sounds like it's going to be really depressing. But I mean, it's it's a very uh, thoughtful. Um, 
a sad movie because it's Sherlock at the end of his life realizing all the opportunities that he missed to find happiness and to find love and whatever, you know? I think the thing that bothered me most about Ian McKellen not winning is also Nick Nolte was over was overdue by that time and Edward Norton was was at the pinnacle of his of his talent. People were talking about him as one of the best actors. Um, but Ian McKellen was a Shakespearean actor and with a really, really good, you know, long um, a reputation as such and and usually the oscars and michael will attest to this they usually honor that if it's if there's an actor in the race who's a who's a shakespearean actor and has that kind of history and that kind of reputation and legacy they don't walk past it usually so it, it, it to me it seemed a very glaring snub i'm still here um Stealing muscles. Take your fucking mask off me now, okay? Sorted brute, you are. Hey, hey, just get your fucking hands off me! It's no use, Clayton. I can't hear you. I can't hear a word. Oh, well then, maybe this. Hey, 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 hey! Yes! Now I've got you! How will you ever get yourself back? Like I told you, I'm not that way. Get through your fucking head, all right? It's been a good Deadly mistake. Did I tell my friends about this when they'd be surprised? I haven't done anything with you. You undressed for me. I've been kissing you. I even touched your prick. How will you ever be able to live with yourself? What do you want from me? I want you to kill me. Break my neck. Come on, strangle me. It's so easy to choke the life out of me. Come on, Clint. We've come this far. I'm losing my mind. Every day a new piece of it carries, and soon there'll be none of it left. Be bearable. You could be my second monster. Come on. Please, do it now. Make me invisible. I am not your monster. And that's how I've always interpreted it all these years later. Yes, he was, Roberto Benigni made you feel good, and he was funny and comical, and they wanted to see him get on stage. But on the other hand, I felt that it was a, it was a kind of a slap in the face uh, and, a, and another sign of their homophobia in Hollywood in general 
to do that. Although we must say, Bill Condon did win an Oscar for writing the screenplay. That's that's true. But at the same time, I, I did, I'm glad you said it because it's all, so I'm not always the one who's saying it. And it's not as if the Academy is homophobic because people are going to point out to us all the times when gay um, people have won won Oscars. But I will say that it's undeniable that probably. There are 200 or 300 or 500 people in the academy who are homophobic, and that can be enough to to push the, to to make someone lose an Oscar if all of those guys just refuse to see a movie or to vote for uh, an actor who's who's gay and out. Is that that that's all it takes? Is 500 homophobes? Right. Well, the, 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 well, what's so funny about it is that. There are so many gay people in the industry itself. You know, I'm pretty sure that with all the Academy members, I'm pretty sure there's a lot of those people that are probably gay. But for the whole homophobic thing, I think now, I think it may, it may change now because so many people are coming out in Hollywood that if, a, if an actor or an actress gave a great performance and they were out and open out about being gay, the chances of them winning could come in their favor and well, we'll could see go in their that. favor. We'll see about now. that. So far, they don't have a lot of gay actors playing either gay or straight. However, I agree with you. People are starting to come out, but you can see why. Looking at this year, you can see why people like Tom Cruise and John Travolta, if they are in fact you know, gay, why they didn't come out and why it was so hard right. for Jodie Foster to come out as an actor. Because once you're a gay actor, that's what you are, a gay actor, and you can't even play a gay character. So you have mm-hmm. Sean Penn playing, you know, gay. I know we talked about this last week with Greg Kinnear, and I, but I don't, I wouldn't single Greg Kinnear out particularly, and I don't want to get in that argument again. But, but, but you made that bigger point, which was spot on, about how straight actors come in and win the Oscars that that gay actors could possibly win, like Sean Penn in Milk, for instance, or mm-hmm. uh, William Hurt in Kiss of the Spider Woman. And you, you, you mentioned it as being like an affliction or a disease or a handicap or something, which is so funny. Um, and that's why they win because they're, they're, you know, playing a disability or something. Exactly. But, yeah. But it's there frustrating to see it so plainly delineated that you, this year in 1998 with Ian McKellen because he clearly deserved to win, although he did have much competition there. So it could have been that those performances, sometimes in the Academy when you have so many great performances competing, the one comedy role wins out. Like that's what happened with Marissa Tomei. Um, and when she won, she was competing against all these really strong performances. They split up the vote, and then you got kind of the dumb person's vote for the win. Yeah, because as I said before, you've got half the Academy who are probably some really smart, sophisticated, intelligent, thoughtful people, and you've got half the Academy who are not, who are more middle-brow. And those half of the Academy who are really, really smart, their votes split four different ways to the four to the four different really smart performances, and then you've got the other half of the Academy who all vote for Benini. You know, so that's how <laughs> right. things like that happen. When you've got, you know, all the intellectuals and sophisticated people voting for a bunch of different sophisticated performances, <laughs> exactly. and then you've got, you know, 20 or 30 percent of the academy who are just dumbasses who, and they, they can win out. And that's right. how Bush gets elected. That's how, that's just how the way that, that, that voting goes in America. Yeah, that's why they don't like people to, to vote for Ralph Nader. It's sort of that idea of you siphon the vote. And so you could imagine mm-hmm. anyone smart enough to vote for, say, Edward Norton or, um, or um, Nick Nolte, you know, or Ian McKellen, they're all going to be split up because those are all three really great performances. And Tom Hanks, those exactly. are great yeah. performances that are going to be pulling votes. But somehow um, Benini ended up getting the lion's share 
and winning. So well, this is why I always sound like a fascist dick, but this is why democracy has no business in art because because people are stupid and you shouldn't be able to vote on art. It should be decided by a team of smart people. <laughs> and I will say, Michael, that I think you're right about the fact that it will become more and more easy for, for, for out gay actors in the future to be uh, nominated more often and to win because what's happening is the same thing is happening in America is all of the old st- um, stubborn homophobes are dying as they get too old to live anymore. They die off and we're, are being replaced by younger people who are more smarter and, and more tolerant and more sophisticated. And that's being reflected in the con- in America and it's been being reflected in the Academy makeup too. Here, yeah, here, 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 here. Um, let's well, move yeah, on. Cause it's going to be the changing of the guard, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So let's move let's on see. to best actress. Um, I just Briefly, I know we want to go back and talk about a couple of the other best pictures like uh, Thin Red Line and um, maybe Elizabeth. We can talk about Elizabeth right now as we talk about Best Actress. Um, in addition to Gwyneth Paltrow, who won, the performances that year were um, Kate Blanchett and Elizabeth, Fernando, uh, Fernanda, Fernanda Montenegro in Central Station, which was a totally surprise out-of-left-field nomination, uh, Emily Watson and Hillary and Jackie, and the one performance I think stands out that that is even better than Gwyneth and Shakespeare in Love, but would never win because uh, she's just so taken for granted, was Meryl Streep in One True Thing. I don't know how many people that are listening to this have seen Meryl Streep in One True Thing. I don't know how many people that I'm talking to right now have seen it. I saw it. Love it. It is so good. And it is one of Meryl Streep, because the woman can do no wrong. I was just watching Silkwood the other day, and she's just such a good actress. But... In one true thing, she plays a mother who's dying of cancer. And as usual with Meryl Streep, she's surrounded by kind of a, you know, a, you know, an okay story and other actors like Renee Zellweger and William Hurt. And a whole family drama has to play out while you are um, watching. But uh, Meryl Streep dying of cancer and having to say goodbye to her family and her daughter and, and being the mom that everybody turns to. In um, who's always just there for everybody, and now she's dying, and everybody has to kind of be there for her. It will it will break your heart in two. But it's she's so really resilient at the beginning, and then of course she she begins to just be incapable of being resilient anymore because it just beats her. It begins to just beat her down beyond anybody's resistance, right? Oh, and yeah. it's just it's just yeah, it just, it's wrecks it wrecks me. It's uh, and it's really well written and extremely well directed because it's our it's our it's my man Carl Franklin who directed it. Carl oh Franklin. yeah, Carl Franklin for the win. You can be hard, Ellen. And you can be very judgmental. And with those two things alone, you're going to make such a mess out of your life you wouldn't believe. And I want to be able to tell you these things in 10 years. And when I think how most of what you learned so far came from your dad, it just it hurts my heart to think how little I have gotten don't, done. Mom, don't yes, yes, I want, yes, sh- yes, yes, yes. Come on, let me speak. Like, can we I want to talk. You let me talk. Now let me talk. Your dad won't let me talk because he says I'll upset myself. And you won't let me talk. Oh, Mom, please don't talk. Brian's the only one who lets me talk. He's never here. I want to talk before I die. I do. I want to be able to say the things. I want to say the deep thoughts. Okay, okay. Without you shushing me because what I say hurts you. Oh. Tired of being shushed. What do you want to say? I already said everything I want to say. Except I'm sad. 
I'm sad that I won't be able to plan your wedding. So promise me that you won't have a ring bearer or a flower girl because those kids always just misbehave and then they distract from the bride. And don't invite too many people. Well, you know, I might not even get married, so... Whatever. If I knew that you would be happy, I would close my eyes now. I would. It's so much easier to be happy, my love. It's so much easier to choose to love the things that you have. And you have so much. Instead of always yearning for what you're missing, or what it is you're imagining you're missing. It's so much more peaceful. God, I wish I'd been blogging then because I would have made a much bigger deal out of one true thing. I remember at the time it was a miracle that she got nominated because it didn't get a lot of critical acclaim and people weren't really seeing it. But I think as over the years, people have rediscovered it. And uh, just try watching the scene where they're singing Christmas carols um, under the tree. You can make me cry. I know. I, I think of it, and my eyes start to get misty-eyed. When, and she's singing, and, and Renee Zellweger, I'm going to get chills right now, but they're singing, and Renee Zellweger looks over at her, and, she's, and she looks at her mom, and she's like, my mom is going to die. And that's what's in her face. And she just keeps singing, and she puts her arms around her mom. Oh. Sorry, I get a little bit clenched. <laughs> I can't talk. You guys talk. I know. Talk amongst yourselves. The uh, movie tears me apart. It's so good. I know. I know. Oh God. And you're right. As far as performances go, just raw performances, is it, it surpasses it, as great as Gwyneth was. Is there's no comparison. No. You know, or or or, you, or there is, uh, or you do can they really understand why Meryl Streep was nominated once you see this movie and will and will think that she deserved another Oscar for it. Oh my but, God, uh, she is. The, you know she's in a class by herself honestly and i think when said that when she when she accepted her award she said that and and you know because as they do you know they they will mention their their fellow nominees and she and she says something about meryl being like the best you know yeah. it's like the ultimate she is and in this she really shows it i mean that incredible just incredible work and and you know what's surprising is um, Carl Franklin. You know he was a television actor for years back in the seventies and stuff. And just a little bit of trivia, Sasha, he directed one of your favorite shows, Homeland. He directed one episode of Homeland. Oh, Carl he, directed, he, he directed some episodes of House of Cards, right? And yeah. and Newsroom, yeah. and the Newsroom. Yeah. Oh, that's so he, I'm glad he's still working and doing such great work too. Oh yeah, yeah. Because uh, yeah, I remember him as an actor way back in the seventies. We talked about him. You might, I think, maybe you were taking um, some weeks off from us, Michael. We talked about um, one false move and um, and uh, Devil in a Blue Dress. Did he direct? Oh, it was yeah. one of my favorite films. Yeah. Devil in a Blue Dress. Oh, that's a great movie. Um, I now want to move on to Best Supporting Actor because I'd like to talk a little bit about the Truman Show. Um, the James Coburn won for Affliction, and it was a well-deserved Oscar. Probably, I mean, really, if you've seen Affliction, you, you will just say, wow, because James Coburn, he plays a mean son of a bitch, but he's really good in the role, and he totally deserved the Oscar. He was up against Robert Duvall for a civil action. Meh. And Jeffrey, Jeffrey Rush for Shakespeare in Love. He's fantastic in it. He's just great. Love and a bit with a dog. That's what the people want. <laughs> and uh, Billy Bob Thornton in A Simple Plan. Great, great, great. But Ed Harris in Truman Show. Um, we just watched Truman Show tonight, and I know Craig was watching it too. And I have to say I hadn't seen that movie since 1998 when it first came out. And I was wondering, 
how good could Ed Harris be to actually get a nomination from that? He's one of the the few uh, nominations that the film received. I think it's a great movie. I think it deserved to get a Best Picture nomination. And um, it was incredibly moving story and Jim Carrey is fantastic and he should have been nominated also instead of it, Roberto Benigni. It at least got best director. There's that. Peter, we got a director nomination for it. Yeah, that's great. But um, anybody else want to talk about it? I just found it to be really um, a, a very deep and kind of probing look at uh, not so much our culture, which it does do that. It definitely is. We're living the Truman Show. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's not even a lead. That, it, it was prescient in a way that Network was prescient about foretelling the future, about what, what, what was just down, what, right around the corner for us on t- with television, yeah. you know, about reality TV and everything. But I, I felt, can't understand why it didn't catch on in, in L.A. that year. I don't know, I, but I felt more than that it was a movie, a meditation on, on God and creation. I know it's, mm-hmm. it's obviously that. Like and humanity in general, just mm-hmm. our need to break out of the norm and to not be repressed and controlled and to have to do our own thing ultimately mm. that's that's to me what that that speaks the loudest to me about it and more than any of the um more overt messages about creation and you know sort of the societal messages about reality tv and whatnot but you know i i i hesitate to talk about it because i'm going to sound like an asshole that i didn't i wasn't totally satisfied with Ed Harris in it, nor was I totally satisfied with uh, uh, Jim Carrey, whom I'm a huge fan of. And if he'd just dialed down his Jim Carreyness a little bit in that movie, I totally would have been on board a nomination and a win for him. He did it with um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and oh, yeah. I think was completely ignored. But he... It's like he, he couldn't decide whether he wanted to be a serious actor or he wanted to be the goofball Jerry Lewis comedian. And he more often than not favored the Jerry Lewis goofball comedian. And I wish that he hadn't. But oh. I think I'm the only one who feels that way. That's funny because I didn't. I, I just, my heart felt so sad for Truman the whole way through. I just wanted him to be rescued so badly. And I, There are huge chunks of it where he's deeply sympathetic but there are also the signature Jim Carrey moments that sort of put me out of the movie. Yeah, I could see that. I, you know, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I, I don't know. I was so swept up in it. I'm really surprised it didn't get a um, musical score uh, nomination, or did it? Let's see. Um, it didn't. It, it was it such not- a beautiful score. I don't know who did it, but my God, it was just stunningly beautiful. And um, the part of it was the music for me, but I just felt so sad for him. He was he was yeah. a, he was a, the first child adopted by a corporation. He was raised <laughs> to sell products, and you know, and here he's trying to get out of his, his life. You know, I, I I didn't really I agree with Michael. He was talking to me about this after. He didn't really like the ending, and I don't really like the ending that much either. And maybe that's where the movie fail. You know, was. what about the ending? Don't you like? Um, it feels I wanted to see him get out. You know, he it's, did. It, but it kind of felt like. Um, it was just it went to black so quickly. Like you don't well, know if the girl hooked up with him, the, the woman that he's the been falling is, in love with. That, that's the beauty of it is that you don't know what happens to him when he enters the big wide world. We know that he leaves this hermetic environment into the real world, but we don't know what happens to him when he gets there. And that's that's the beauty of life is you just don't know what's going to happen. Whereas mm-hmm. his entire life up to that point had been scripted and controlled and manipulated. Right, right. That's a beautiful way to put it. That's really, really true. And it, it was 
I had to change to say the word structurally, but it, but it made sense structurally, too, because we're witnessing him as if we're viewers of the, the television show. And as soon as he leaves the television show, as soon as he right. quits the television show, then the show's over. Exactly. The TV, we turn the TV off and the screen is black. And when school's and, away. Okay, and that yeah, makes sense. That does make sense. Okay. On TV, our interest ends when it goes to mm-hmm. black. But in real mm-hmm. life, it doesn't. You want to know what happens to this guy because you've fallen in love with him because he's he's adorable. Even when he's being goofy, you know, mugging Jim Car- Jim Carrey, he's still a likable, innocent. That sort. kind of worked for me in a way, although I never liked it in any other movie that he's been in. But it kind of worked for me because you wonder if he wasn't sort of strange acting, why would anybody be wanting to watch the show? You know, if there wasn't something like really unusual, like if he wasn't like a like a grown up honey boo boo type, then why would anybody be tuning in to watch it unless he was kind of a clown? You know, so he has to be like the most strange person in the little town or else, you know, the show wouldn't be popular. It wouldn't make any sense that people would even be wanting to tune in every week to watch his life. So that, in a way, I kind of felt like at that time in the 90s, before we had Honey Boo Boo and before we had Big Brother, there was an attraction to watching an actual real human being, and that was what he should have been. It would have been more successful to me if he had been a more more realistic person rather than sort of a Jim Carrey mature character. Yeah, I can so, buy that because at the same time on MTV there was like what was that show they used to have on MTV all the time where the roommates would get together? What was that called? Real World. Yeah, real world. the fucking yeah, roommates. Real world. Yeah. Oh yeah, Real World. And they were all real people. They were. They, they were not, none of them were really outlandish. Right. Yeah. And so I want to now. I'm, I'm totally being a taskmaster here. I'm sorry. It's okay. Wanna, it's okay. I want to move on to best supporting actress because I want to talk a little bit about. I know we didn't talk about this in emails or any of our preps, but I have recently discovered rediscovered Primary Colors. Um. And and uh, the nominees that year. It's 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 weird and kind of telling that Laura Linney wasn't nominated for the Truman Show. That show sort of tells you what people were thinking about that movie at the time because otherwise nowadays she's such a big star she would have been nominated for that but the nominees for supporting actor were um uh, lynn redgrave in gods and monsters who would have won that year except that she went through this ugly divorce and that that drew publicity away so that's why she didn't win rachel griffiths and she deserved to rachel griffiths for hillary and jackie uh brenda blethin for little voice kathy bates for primary colors who's fantastic and then judy dench for shakespeare in love um just we already talked about shakespeare in love but i just have to to make a quick Shout out to Judy Dench and people say, "Oh, it was such a short part; she didn't deserve to win." She did. She did. She was great in it. She's great, and she has all the best lines, and she delivers them so magnificently in Shakespeare in Love. And she is on on for a short time, but she absolutely steals the show. She does. Just for the record, I totally disagree with you. Okay. <laughs> I love that movie, and I that's my the one win that that movie got that I don't agree with. You would have rather seen uh, um, Lynn Redgrave win, or uh, no, Brenda Blethyn. Oh yeah, I just it just you know the movie. I just, I, I don't want to be a dick because I've already been a dick and I don't want to be a dick. But the movie works without her, as far as I'm concerned. She's great. She I love you know in terms of what we've said on the podcast. We've made dirty jokes about her. I love mm-hmm. I love that actress, but that 
character is just such a small part of that movie that it Can I ask you? the movie didn't need it. I disagree because she has, she, first of all, she's the deus ex machina, which is such a brilliant way that they fly in the deus ex machina at the, at the end because, Mr. Tilney, yes. have a care with my name. You'll wear it out as she's walking mm-hmm. up to the stage and there she appears and she sets everything right. So she's important plot-wise, but more than that, she is the driving force behind everything in the uh in the movie it's it's all about a woman pretending to be a man because she can't be um she's not allowed to be on the stage a woman on the public stage a woman they're not she's not allowed and so uh, when when judy dench says i know what it is to be you know a woman in a man's world by god i do it is such Mm -hmm. a powerful moment it is one of the most powerful moments in the movie because it does Put the fist down on the table and says, yes, fucking Queen Elizabeth did it. She was Henry VIII's daughter. You know, yeah, we saw a movie about Elizabeth that year with um, with Kate Blanchett, so we know we know who Queen Elizabeth is. But in Shakespeare and Love, it's about power play of the sexes and about love and love lost. She says, no poet, you know, no no writer can can uh, write a play about love, and she's she's challenged and she's proven wrong by Shakespeare, who writes the definitive and ultimate story of love. And Queen Elizabeth herself. Her whole story uh, was about love lost in her life, you know, and she never really got that. She never had children. She never married. She had these, you know, brief flings. So love is haunting Queen Elizabeth, and that is one of the most beautiful things about Shakespeare and love is how it threads through history and through Queen Mm -hmm. Elizabeth. See, it would have been awesome if they included a lot of that story about Queen Elizabeth into the movie because she was a huge part of creating the environment that allowed Shakespeare to thrive in general. And the reason and that that's you... my beef is that she's on screen for so little of the time. She should have been there more. But Judy Dench's acting... That's my, that's my acting. only complaint. Okay, and, and that's fair. But she... Judy Dench's acting makes up for it, and I think that's why she deserved to win. Because yeah, for me, she does history... It's not her fault. She does the best she can, when and she a... makes a huge impression based on a tiny, tiny imprint but I wish that it was more. Yeah. See, I have a movie that's such a butterfly movie where things come together, like we're talking about an ethereal sort of thing where this magic happens. I hate to think about tampering with the pacing of a movie by right. adding you scenes. Don't give her, you don't give her Best Supporting Actress based mm-hmm. on that. Then. Oh, I would have. Thing. Absolutely would have for that, yeah. I mean, nowadays well, we're living in an era where Best Supporting Actress is won by lead performances. But yeah. that, to me, is what a Best Supporting Actress really is. It's a, it's an, it's a performance that supports the story and the actors it's not a lead performance it's a supporting yep, yep. performance that's you're correct. right she and she absolutely supports the film christopher marlowe has he been to the house marlowe <gasps> yes is the one lovely waistcoat shame about the poetry that dog Stand up straight, girl. I've seen you. You are the one who comes to all the plays at Whitehall, at Richmond. Your Majesty. What do you love so much? Your Majesty. Speak up, girl. I know who I am. 
Do you love stories of kings and queens, of feats of arms, or is it courtly love? I love theatre. To have stories acted for me by a company of fellows isn't... They're not acted for you, they're acted for me. And? And I love poetry above all. Above Lord Wessex. <laughs> My lord, when you cannot find your wife, you better look for her at the playhouse. <laughs> Playwrights teach us nothing about love. They make it pretty, they make it comical, or they make it lust. They cannot make it true. Oh, but they can. I mean, Your Majesty, they, they do not. They have not, but I believe there is one who can. My Lady Viola is young in the world, Your Majesty is wise in it. Nature and truth are the very enemies of play acting. I'll wager my fortune. I thought you were here because you had none. <laughs> <laughs> Well, no one will take your wager, it seems. Fifty pounds. Fifty pounds? A very worthy sum on a very worthy question. Can a play show us the very truth and nature of love? I bear witness to the wager and will be the judge of it as occasion arises. I've seen nothing to settle it yet. Well, no more fireworks? They will be soothing after the excitements of Lady Viola's audience. <laughs> Have her then, but you're a lordly fool. She's been plucked since I saw her last, and not by you. It takes a woman to know it. What, what are you going to say, Michael? I keep jumping on you. That's okay. Um, I kind of feel that, um, first of all, she was absolutely great, and she deserved to win. But I think that if she had been in the, in the film more, it would have taken away from the leads, I think. Because she, cause she dominates when she's in her scenes. You know, like the, all the other actors kind of, like, fall apart with her because she's so great. But I think if she had been in more minutes in the film, more often, it would have been her film, I think. Even though... Um, Gwyneth Paltrow was the lead, but people would have thought more about Judy Dench as Queen Elizabeth and how great she was. So I think for her, timing in the film was perfect. You know, they didn't need her throughout the film. Those two scenes that she's in are great. I will say too, when we wonder, uh, in addition to just being incredibly good in the role and the role being a, and the character being a pivotal part of the story, we also have to think about other things that were going on that may have helped her win that year. The previous year, she had been nominated for um, Mrs. Brown, right? Also directed right. by John Madden, and a lot of people probably were sorry that she didn't win and probably were looking at Helen Hunt thinking, really, Helen Hunt beat Judy Dench? And because you saw, you watched Mrs. Brown, didn't you, Craig? We didn't get a chance to talk about it last week. But so you know how good it is, right? You know how good I she did, was in and it. And I totally would have picked her over Helen Hunt. Exactly. So, so I'm it, sure it, it a lot sort of, of feels like a, It sort of feels like a give back. But I'm, I'm well, trying to It's, it's almost like a consolation prize I, in a sense. Yeah. Well, but, but you guys, I, I the thing is... Pro- is that, when you're talking about Weinstein and you're talking about Best Picture and you're talking about a surprise winner like that that everybody loves, it's like the English patient when Juliette Binoche won. They're going to throw Oscars at it wherever they can and all the right. things they love about it. And that's she got swept up in it. Um, I, I agree with you that I think of all the actresses, I don't think Brenda Bleth and I think Lynn Rengrave is the one who really deserved uh, the prize. And, and I wouldn't have. 
I wouldn't have complained if she had won. She did have a messy divorce, which which um, distracted from her win. Unfortunately, her husband was a real dick during that phase. But um, can we just move on quickly to primary colors? Because Kathy Bates was um, overlooked for, for that. She does win coming up. Did we already go through Misery? Did we pass Misery already? So she's already won we Best passed Actress. Misery, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Okay, so she's already won Best Actress. But she plays... A lesbian campaign strategist in Primary Colors, which is such an incredible movie that was overlooked uh, by the Oscars because it was really consumed by the the shadows of both John Travolta and Bill Clinton at the time. And, And people weren't really paying attention to the artistry of it, directed by Mike Nichols, screenplay by Elaine May, starring Emma Thompson and Kathy Bates. And it has, you know, this... the the young black actor, what's his name? Uh, Adrian Lester. Um, he plays. He's in the part of um, you know what's his name? Stephanopoulos, who was who was um, um, Clinton's aide at the time. And and they're uncovering this really creepy story about uh, Stanton, who's supposedly Clinton, who impregnates this young teenage black girl. And um, uh, Emma Thompson as supposedly as Hillary. Um, finding out about it. And and what what they do in this movie is that the young political guy, it's kind of like the Ides of March, it's very similar to that. They have the opportunity to uh, release some information about, I think it's Larry Hagman, who's who's gay, I believe. And, and, And they... They want Kathy Bates to do it because it means the difference between winning and not winning, and and she actually becomes so disillusioned she ends up killing herself. But you know, okay, so maybe the movie's all over the place, maybe it's sloppy, but but it should be seen because you should listen to the script that Elaine May wrote, and and there's a great speech by Kathy Bates just before she kills herself that is so beautiful and worth hearing. Um, I just think that it has a lot of treasures in it. Yes, it's not a perfect movie. Yes, it's the weird, gross guy's book turned into a movie it's it's gross weird conservative rambling guy but it does it is interesting <laughs> wait, you know, wait, 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 i missed what you said there what, uh, what oh, about you know, the book primary colors was written by that guy right that he's joe guy. klein he's on the msnbc all the time he's a liberal oh. isn't he joe klein's a liberal he worked he worked for clinton he was like oh. he was like he was on the in, he was on the inside he knew what was going on it wasn't meant to be an expose for some reason i it thought it meant, was dick morris I, mean, it, I thought it was, it was like a it was it was more like a let me tell you the story that i can't really tell you because i'm not supposed to be naming names but this is what this is what it was like inside the the clinton white house well it's pretty damning damning against clinton it's pretty Mm -hmm. fucking damning i mean he gets Mm -hmm. a you know he he impregnates Mm -hmm. this young girl and he he bribes the dad and he makes her get an abortion although Mm -hmm. and you know to this day there's a there's a kid out there that people think is clinton's kid you know mm-hmm. that, right? Yeah. He you know, she did, she did win the um, Screen Actors Guild Award, though, for Best Supporting Actress that year. Kathy Bates? Yeah, she did. Oh. Yeah, right, because she's she was she's really, really popular in the actors branch, really super popular. She's great in the part. Um, I don't know. I just want to give a shout-out to the movie. I think you have con- – anyway, I just want to correct. I thought that it, I thought that Dick Morris, for some reason, had written that book, but it's not Dick Morris. It's, it's Joe Klein, and I like Joe Klein, and I think that he, I think the book was a great great material, and I think that Elaine May did a fantastic job adapting it. I've, it's been a long time since I've seen it. You make me want to see it again because I know that I remember really liking it. There were a couple movies that came out that year. That a couple Last week, we should I, didn't, I meant to mention Wag the Dog. We didn't talk about Wag the Dog at all, which also was really – really um, right on target about about what was happening in American politics at the time. Um, so there were there were some great political movies coming 
uh, in the late 90s. Bullworth, Warren Beatty made Bullworth. It's interesting that uh, Elaine May turned down co-writing Bullworth with Beatty because she was already working on um, Primary, Primary Colors. Colors. I didn't know yeah. that. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. They'd worked together in the past on... Um, Ishtar, which didn't work out so well, but, but you're right. Day, right. You're right to praise Primary Colors, though, Sasha. I remember that I really, really liked it, and I, I can't. I don't know why I've only seen it once. It's so, it's worth the, seeing again. The yeah. thing, though, about Judy Dench and Roberto Benigni, and I'm going to lump them together because they were in movies that were beloved by people, and the, the, it seems like Oscar has a tendency to gravitate in terms of the supporting and yeah. acting roles sometimes to vote for for the movies that they just plain out loved. Absolutely. And Absolutely. That's why the actor race tends to drive. It didn't that year, but it tends to drive Best Picture. Um, the actress race did that year. Um, but that's why it's so hard for, for an act. For instance, this year with Chiwetel Ejiofor versus Robert Redford, they want to give it to Robert Redford really badly, but how do you deny, like, the strongest performance in the best picture front runner it's really difficult to do um we're getting close to our time limit so we should i want you guys craig and michael or whoever wants to talk about the thin thin um the thin red line because we haven't talked about that's the only would it be better if uh, michael and ryan talk about elizabeth they can talk about uh, Elizabeth. I liked we... Elizabeth a lot. Not really. I don't have a whole lot to say about it. I, it's, I, it's Michael's I, favorite I, of the year, so I kind of feel like okay, yeah. about it. Michael, I, yeah. I, I love I put him on the spot. My choice. <laughs> well, you know, I don't mean to. I'm trying to be inclusive. I would pick Thin Red Line as the best movie of that year, but I didn't think it would ever have a chance of winning, and I'm comfortable with it not winning. So, you, you, know, you know, I don't have I'll... a ton to say about it. You know what I, why I love uh, Thin Red Line and Elizabeth both is because they're so visually extravagant and stylish. They're just gorgeous to look at, both of them, and so in, in such different ways. You know, the cinematography and the set design and the production design of both of those movies is just, you know, lavish. And I love them, And they're, but they're so different. And uh, it's interesting that they, to do a story about Elizabeth that they went to find an Indian director. Who had who had a totally different perspective and probably didn't maybe didn't even know a whole lot about um, British history, and and so he just took off on his own, in his own direction with it. Well, um, the Indians had a lot to do with British history because remember um, England controlled that part of the world for for many years. Of course, not uh, during the time yeah, of Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, of course, right, right, right. I like the film because. Um, I love the history of the whole Tudor family and Henry VIII and his, his whole all of his wives and I, I, I like the pageantry of it. It, it, it was just, it was just so um, um, colorful, you know. With, with the costumes were on the mark. The acting, Kate Blanchett was just so on the mark as playing Elizabeth. You know, she had that girlish quality about her, but when she became queen, she became just as equal to the men when she. Um, found her strength, you know, she, and she was equal. And she, she said that um, when she's dancing with Joseph Fiennes and he says, you're my Elizabeth, and she goes, I'm no man's Elizabeth. You know, nobody owns me. You know, I'm my own woman. I don't need you guys. You know, of course, the film plays on history. A lot of it is not accurate, and that kind of bothers me with a lot of these films with um they portray history. You're supposed to believe the film, but it is sort of a romance, in a sense, as well as historical fact, which it's kind of based on fact, but then it's not based on fact. But I just love the film because it just offers just 
a history lesson about Queen Elizabeth. What I like, too, is that, that usually the history lessons that we get um, are sort of sanitized, especially about the Tudors, or have been up until that time. But this is a really lusty, sexy, and extremely violent image of what the Tudor uh, era was like. And I don't think that the Tudors television series on Showtime or even Game of Thrones would exist without having precedents like Elizabeth to show, to sort of set a pattern for how, how, how great that can be when you see really how um, passionate and, and brutal it was, you know? That's it, a really big thing now. It's commonplace now to see it, but nothing had been seen like that before. No, and I mean, the last time that um, I saw something about Queen Elizabeth was Glenda Jackson played her on a television miniseries back in the 70s called Elizabeth R. And Mm -hmm. it was, and this, from what I have read, is the most accurate of her life. Mm -hmm. Of course, for a movie that runs a hundred like an hour and 50 minutes, you can't put everything about her life in. So they took bits and pieces and things that happened. They changed sort of the time differences a little bit. Um, but still, it's an intriguing film to watch. And, um, it's, and it's just beautifully set, you know. And yeah. I don't know if it was a best picture win because it kind of reminds you of something from, um, from the BBC, you know what I mean? So, but other than that, it's just... Um, I love it. The, I just love the, the film. BBC can make movies like that now, but back in the nineteen or and <clears throat> sorry, in the mid nineties, the BBC were making um, television movies like the like the Glinda Jackson version, you know, which were a lot more theatrical and a lot more simplistic. I mean, not simplistic, but simple as far as sets and stuff like that. They go. They didn't really. They didn't really have the production design back back in the eighties and nineties that they do now. Right. But, What's um, interesting is that Mrs. Brown was actually a BBC production for, meant for TV that Harvey mm-hmm. Weinstein saw and snapped up and saw the theatrical potential of. I think it's a way better movie than Elizabeth. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I can't stand Elizabeth. I thought it was it was beautiful but dull, which is a little, describes a lot of things. Um, it it just it. I, maybe because I already knew the story because I studied it intensively in college when I did a, a, a Shakespeare course where it was huge Elizabeth and huge Shakespeare. But I, I didn't know the Queen Victoria story, so to me it was much more interesting to me. Our listeners are probably going to be really mad if we don't talk more about The Thin Red Line, though, because a lot of people just are passionate about that movie. And the Academy must have I, I been passionate about it, too. Yeah. I just wanted no. to give Michael a chance to stand up for oh, the movie. I know, like yeah, this. absolutely, and I'm glad we did. That's a good good thing. I'm glad we touched on it, too. But it, the Academy liked um, liked The Thin Red Line as much as a certain... As people were skeptical that Tree of Life would be nominated for Best Picture. But there are enough Malick fans in the Academy that his movies managed to make it into the Best Picture nominees time after time. He hadn't made a movie after Days of Heaven for, what, like 14 years? He had been he just disappeared after he made Badlands and, and Days of Heaven, right? right? So this was a fantastic comeback for him. It, and You know, I, I, I love Malick, and I'm a huge fan of Tree of Life and of Thin Red Line, but I can't help but thinking that people tend to elevate him a little bit because of his infrequency. And I kind of feel like um, in terms of the current year's nominees that to the wonder is going to get kicked to the curb because it came so recently after tree of life. I think people liked him better when he was making movies less often. There was a, there was a rarity to them that, that's, 
that he doesn't have now. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. curious about that. Yeah, I see, can see what I can see that. It's almost as if it's like, oh, Malik is back with another gift he's going to bestow on us. He's been away yeah. for so long, and now finally here he is with another treasure. But when he just th- throws treasure at us year after year, it becomes like, uh, I've got one of those already. See, yeah, I can't exactly. say much about The Thin, thin Red Line because I've never seen it. The only Malik film I've ever seen, and I, I love to death, is Days of Heaven. That's the only one I've ever seen. So I, I would have to... Um, See the see the thin wet the thin red line and um, what's the other one you said? It's about the tree, tree of life, tree, tree of, of life, and to the wonder. You should check out Thin Red Line. It's interesting, especially this year, in terms of the fact that there was another big World War II movie that was hogging most of the glory. It's um, it, it, it's not really a war movie. It, it explores sort of the. Um, the the intersection of humanity and war and nature and it's it's sort of a more of a poetic look at war in general it's not i I wouldn't want to call it a war movie more than it is a a movie about human beings and war being one aspect of of human nature so is it sort of like um full metal jacket like that no no, no. the opposite the opposite like it's it's really philosophical yeah Mm. more philosophical more poetic and it's a beautiful film i mean um the the, actually the first time i saw it i didn't i didn't see it when it was currently in theaters i saw it a few years later at the egyptian theater in hollywood at the american cinematheque and they had a technicolor dye transfer print of it and it was the most amazing thing that i've ever seen on screen it's not a technology that they use for producing films anymore and i don't i don't even know how to explain how they how dye transfer is different but the the blacks are the blackest blacks you've ever seen and the whites are the whitest whites you've ever seen and there's every range in between and it's just this deep, rich, amazing look to it and the the cinematography cinematography by John Toll it just, it, it's stunning it, it's worth it's worth seeing alone just with the way it looks um, he, now he, he uses a very huge cast of actors, right? Yes, and ironically, a lot of the bigger name actors, their parts were completely cut out. Um, Adrian Brody. Adrian Brody, this was supposed to be his big introduction to the world in terms of uh, being a great actor. And he's in it for a few seconds, basically, when he he was supposed to be originally the backbone of the film. But that's how... Malik works. He films a ton of stuff, and he he kind of makes the film as he goes along. It doesn't. It, it's not conceived of from the, the outset. It it sort of develops as he goes along, and and he works on it, and he and it, it's it, it's one of the strangest filmmaking processes you can imagine. The you know, sad he- thing is that that Adrian Brody showed up the premiere and he didn't know he'd been cut out of the movie, right? He had his family yeah. along with him and everything, and so they were sitting in the movie and he's thinking, where am I? Where am I? Disappointed. No, why does Malik have this, like, um, infrequency with films? He like, he, 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 like, makes a film, then years go by, and then he comes out and makes another one. Why is he like that? Uh, you know, people assume that he's like this weird character because he doesn't do interviews. He doesn't make movies very often. I think he's a guy who lives his life out of the public eye. He's doing other stuff. You know, he's, you know, whatever. Maybe he's 
doing photography or writing poetry or whatever. He's he doesn't live to make a movie every year. That's just the guy that he is. That doesn't make him a weird person. That just makes him the guy that he is. He make when he's inspired to do something, he makes something and it takes him a while to do it because he's careful and and you know, he wants to work at it. He's kinda like it kinda reminds me of Stanley Kubrick, um, who's uh, anti Hollywood, but when he makes a film, Hollywood actors want to work with him, you know. And Terrence Malick kind of has that same thing. Like he, if he comes out with another film, you're gonna have a lot of actors who want to work with him, because. Mm-hmm. But he may be one of those directors who, years from now, if he's still alive, may end up getting like an honorary Oscar or something like that. Even though he hasn't have his his film um, library is kind of small though. He's a guy that the Academy goes for. Even if they don't ultimately reward him with a win, he's a guy that they they want to associate themselves with. They want to nominate him and say, look how smart we are for nominating Terrence Malick. Mm. I don't know that that's what's on people. Minds. I think they're just. I think there's like 20 percent of the Academy who are really just really really adore his movies, like some of us do. Like I know you do, Craig. And I think if we were members of the Academy, we wouldn't be vote, We wouldn't be thinking if we voted for a Terrence Malick movie, look how smart I am. We would be voting for it because we love it, right? You're so, much less cynical than I am. <laughs> <laughs> but what are we forgetting, Sasha? What, we haven't, what haven't we talked about that we should that we should touch on? Uh, are we out of time? Let's see. No, we're not really out of time. Um, we, we should talk about the honorary Oscar situation. It was Warren Beatty's last directorial movie, Bullworth. Yeah, go for it. Talk about Bullworth. I, I, I don't have a ton to say about it. It was a strange movie. I haven't completely warmed up to it. It's not Reds. It's not you know some of the other movies that he's directed. But it's an interesting, fascinating, challenging movie, and actually one that has a lot to say about today in terms of politics and about racial relations. And in some ways, I think it was ahead of its time. I think people didn't quite get it. I think a lot of people were pissed off about it because it, it had this weird offhand way of of treating race. And it showed this dorky white guy trying to do rap music. And, you know, I, I think it's a little bit misunderstood. And I think it, it deserves to be revisited. I, it's not necessarily some, a movie that I would have embraced as a as an oscar movie but you know it's 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 challenging and it's it's a little bit surprising for a guy in his he was what in his 60s at that point that he made it that that is is trying to throw a bomb in a certain sense and make people ask questions and to piss people off a little bit something happened to him during the filming of that uh just to make him never want to make another movie again I mean, it must have just been really hard to get off the ground and then to have it be kind of met with a little bit of a meh by critics and by people. It was never, it didn't really have the impact I think he expected it to have. And the thing about guys like Warren Beatty and Robert Redford and Paul Newman, God rest his soul, um, you know, the ones who are still with us, the giants of cinema are the big time actors. I mean, it must be really kind of surreal to go from such a high place and then to have a moment like that where you really put your heart and soul into something, you take a huge risk, um, and then have it be something that is just sort of met with, meh. I think that's why David Lynch stopped working, and I think that's why yeah. Warren Beatty has. I mean, I guess they feel like, why, so why bother? You know, if the critics aren't going to mm. appreciate it and run away with it and do the kind of stuff critics will do, 
Um, what's and, and that's the only hope you have is, is the critics at, when you're making a movie like that. You know, you, well, you, you could only hope that the critics write the kind of essays that help you change the world the way you hope to do with your film. I'm looking at the reviews right now for Bullworth, and there's only one score of 100, and that's uh, a San Francisco Chronicle guy. Even Ebert gave it like a kind of a middling review. He gave it a good review, but not a great review. Uh, it just sort of looked like it got a lukewarm reception. Not a bad reception, not terrible, but not great either. It's the kind of movie that needs a group of critics to say, this movie is meaningful, important for people to pay attention to it. It's, it's, it's so, there, there's an awkwardness to it, and a, a, not awkwardness, but a, know, he's so willing to make himself look like such a stooge in that movie that I think it's easy to dismiss it and it's a movie that needs critics to say you know what this this is an angry person who has something to say that's relevant and important and and you're you're not paying close attention so so sit down and listen but there were not any critics that were willing to to go to that that uh, level yeah well, well, well Warren Beatty's off. career was starting to wane after because um before that you know back in the 80s he did that movie um Ishtar. Then he did Dick Tracy, Bugsy. Love Affair did not do very well, and he was disappointed with that. Then Bullworth, and then his last movie was Town and Country, which completely bombed. And he hasn't made a movie since... Two, since, so, since so, you know, it's not always sometimes that the director or the actor gets frustrated that no one is appreciating their films. It can also be a, just a financial thing, too, when studios are run by 35-year-olds and they're, they're seeing a 70-year-old guy turn in you know a string of bombs that are expensive right. experiments you're done. You're they, done. they're, they're, they're going to stop giving your money to make movies right. let's move on from Warren Beatty mm-hmm. um uh I, I wanted to talk about the box office uh quickly but there really isn't anything to talk about except that Shakespeare in Love was number nine uh, a lot of it's kids stuff and big tentpole movies that are starting to take over the box office nothing's really changed there Life is Beautiful is in there Saving Private Ryan was number two behind Armageddon and if you don't find that embarrassing there's something wrong with you but that's um, remarkable isn't it that Saving Private Ryan did so well I mean that's, yeah. am- that's another amazing that's another thing that's amazing about wh- th- that it lost after being right. so popular and Shakespeare right. in Love at number nine that's pretty great um, I-, I wanted to stop and and observe the fact that we haven't talked about one very pivotal film from 1998, and I'm sorry that it's taken us an hour and 45 minutes to get to it. But I can't believe we have done this whole podcast without getting to um, the movie that has become a cult phenomenon. It's become a whole movement in and of itself, Uh, The Big Lebowski by the Coen brothers, one of all of our favorite movies, except for Michael. <laughs> no, Actually, I'm not sure that It's not Ryan's favorite movie either, is it? Yeah, it is. Don't say that. Really? Don't ever say that. No, no, no. I, 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 I can't even think of a Coen movie that's not my favorite. I, so saw the, I saw the film last night with Sasha, and I have to say, I did like it. You did yeah. laugh. You laughed all the way through. It's the first work? time I've ever seen it. The first time I've ever seen it. And, he, and I would actually see it again. He laughed and, and that's rare part. for me because I don't see it about a Cohen film. Right. right. But I would see it again. Oh, that's right. I predicted that you wouldn't care for it because you're not a huge Cohen person. Right. Well, the Jeff, the, the, the um, big Lebowski character reminded me. I have a buddy, and he looks like Jeff Bridges. Long hair like Jeff Bridges and sounds like Jeff Bridges. And maybe that's the reason why I like the film, because my friend sounds like this character. Get the fuck out of Malibu, Lebowski. 
<laughs> Fucking fascist. How could that movie have been so overlooked at the time? Was it just so misunderstood, or was it not what people expected after uh, Fargo? Were they oh. still the people still expecting them to do more like Fargo? Or they they had I don't know, but people I'll have in their minds that, that they want the Coens to make a certain kind of movie, and they're never going to do that. When they're we never going to repeat themselves. I was in L.A. at the time when the, that came out, and of course, already a, a Coen Brothers fan, not like quite on the level of Craig, but getting there. And um, I cried until I almost peed my pants watching The Big Lebowski the first time. And I am one of the things I'm most proud of is the fact that I loved that movie when it first came out. And yes, it got the burn after reading treatment. It wasn't, people just didn't know what to make of it. It's like um, Craig was saying, like they, here, Fargo was such a, it was so dark and, and, you know, really people called it a masterpiece. It, it, they just weren't prepared. And I don't think that they knew quite what to make of the Big Lebowski. It, I mean, that's why it's become almost a religious movement, because it is such a thing unto itself. Man, I've got certain information, all right? Certain things have come to light. And, you know, has it ever occurred to you that instead of... Uh, you know, running around uh, uh, blaming me, you know, given the nature of all this new shit, you know, it, it, this could be a, a, a lot more uh, 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 complex. I mean, it's not just, it might not be just such a simple, uh, you know? What in God's holy name are you blathering about? He looks like a fucking loser. Hey, at least I'm housebroken. Huh? No, what the fuck are you? I'm not. The fuck is this? Obviously, you're not a golfer. I peed on the dude's rug. Donnie, you're out of your element. Over the line! This is what happens when you fuck a stranger in the ass! You shouldn't hear What the dude. fuck is he talking My about? My rug. Forget look, it, Donnie, you're look. out of your element. I'll suck your cock for a thousand dollars. I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Uh, but Walter... Hell, I'd get you towed by 3 o'clock this afternoon with nail polish. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. Mr. Treehorn treats objects like women, man. Saturday, Donnie, is Shabbos, the Jewish day of rust. That means I don't work. I don't drive a car. I don't fucking ride in a car. I don't handle money. I don't turn on the oven. And I sure as shit don't fucking roll. Do you see what happens, Larry, when you fuck a stranger in the ass? Isn't that what makes a man? Mm, sure, that and a pair of testicles. Human paraquat! Here's the fucking money, shithead! It's, uh, oh, oh, it's down there somewhere. Let me take another look. Life does not stop and start you know, at your convenience, you I, miserable uh, piece of shit. I, shut the fuck up, Donnie. Donnie, shut the fuck up. When do we play? Shut the fuck up, Donnie. 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 This guy peed on it. Donnie, please. Vagina. It's such a quirky... I'm actually Facebook friends with the guy that it's based on, Jeff Dowd. And I got to talk to him on the phone. And he is this character. And it's surreal to talk to him. But who but the Coens would meet a guy named Jeff Dowd and, and, and watch him with his, you know, his funny Mexican sweater and his long shaggy hair and his uh, white Russians and his, you know, speaking and, you know, talking about doing a lot of tie stick in college and <laughs> protesting the war and <laughs> what do you do? I'm unemployed, you know. He's such a great character and he writes 69, he writes a check for 69 cents. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, <At Ralph's. laughs> which you know that check's gonna bounce. It's so funny. <laughs> check for and then to take him and pair him up with Walter, who John Goodman as Walter is so funny. All the way through the movie, he's funny because all he does is mess things up for the dude. But he's based on. Um, Who's that producer, that famous producer he's based on? Oh, God, what's his name? Oh, he wrote the screenplay to I'm the Barbarian. Yeah. Oh, God. The, the not, not the, he, oh, he's sort of the name? militant sort of uh, pals with Coppola. What's his name? Oh, God. Oh, God. It's all right on the tip of my tongue. How can we find out? Um, oh. Can you edit it in? <laughs> yeah, I'll have to cut out this part. Oh, John Milius? John, John, John Milius. John yeah. Milius. It's based on John Milius and who used to carry around, uh, you know, firearms. And so when, when John Goodman pulls out the gun, <laughs> over the line, when he pulls out the gun. <laughs> You're in the world of paints. <laughs> am I the only one who <laughs> cares about the fucking rules? And and and, uh, um, and that scene is just Cohen Brothers brilliance because there's there's Jeff Lebowski going, put down the gun, Walter, put away the piece or whatever. And then the dog is like barking, ruff ruff ruff, jumping up. What I love is they transpose these weird Southern California characters into what is basically a traditional film noir plot about uh, a, a, an ordinary person who gets in over his head with this weird scheme. And that's like a constant theme for the Coens going all the way back to Blood Simple and continuing through Fargo and everything else. But it's just this weird, weird vibe. And I, I have to admit, as, as huge of a Cohen fan as I was at the time, it wasn't my favorite movie when I saw it. I was still a huge Raising Arizona fan. That was the end-all, be-all for me of the Coens. I loved Fargo, but Raising Arizona was it. But I still I loved it enough so that like a year later, when my best friend came down from Seattle, who was my, my cohort in Cohen crime, we went to the um, Hollywood Star Lanes where the Big Lebowski was filmed. It no longer exists. It's now been turned into a high school or a, uh, elementary school or something. It's up there, but it, we, we actually bowled there. We didn't actually order right white Russians, but several of the people who work in that bowling alley were characters in the film. So I kind of feel that, that I have a, a, an affinity for it in a way that I don't have for many of their other movies. Well, the, Co- the Coens are our kryptonite. Whenever we start talking about them, we could just talk about them for hours. I mean, we, can, we haven't even got onto John Turturro yet. <laughs> I mean, right. Jesus. But I, there's something about the reason that I thought Michael might like The Big Lebowski was because, you know, if you're a native Californian, if you grow up here, you're going to write Michael. You, he was like your roommate. I mean, that, there's something very, like, California beach. About yeah, it. his yeah. character reminded me of guys that I knew like in Venice Beach, Barry especially, Sasha. Yeah, he, I know. He, and you know Barry. He reminded me of that too. So I can relate to the story. I mean, I've known guys like him, so that's why I think I like the film. It's so good, but he's so good. He's just that's the thing is that it it um, the 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 dopey dude living in the in the in the courtyard apartment in Hollywood, <laughs> with the weird <laughs> artist wannabe manager friend, and just all of the tiny little details, the credence tapes, and the crappy car, and going out to In and Out Burger, and this is this is what happens when you fuck a man. <laughs> <laughs> 
all of these details and that and that typifies whether you like this movie or you don't this, that typifies what makes the coen brothers great every one of their movies oh. has that level of detail to it but but the, the 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 one thing that big lebowski has and i think that this is a little bit in fargo but not quite to this extent it's like you say the running jokes throughout um, Big Lebowski, like, shut the fuck up, Donnie. It's <laughs> a mm-hmm. running joke. And how the the levels that they continue to destroy the dude's car until they finally kill his car at the end. <laughs> the nihilists. Um, less, and, and then the stuff about the rug. And, oh, my God, one of my favorite scenes is when Lebowski's building this um, really elaborate <laughs> thing for his door. To, <laughs> to get to keep the nihilists out and somebody comes and opens the door and he built it the wrong way. <laughs> he built it so that you could just open the door the other way out. <laughs> what do you think it is explains the cult following of this movie? Why? I mean, I already sort of know why it wasn't popular when it came out because it wasn't Fargo. But what explains the fact that people have discovered it since and obsess about it and everybody can quote it and there are like big conferences where people show up dressed in character and they watch the movie and they go bowling and they drink white Russians. Why has it become this weird cultural phenomenon when it wasn't really that big of a deal when it originally came out? I've known two different groups of people who first found out about it in college when some person who, who went to college and knew about this movie and would show it to everybody in this dorm and then everybody in the dorm fell in love with it. And it's really perfect college humor you know well, yeah, it's, it's really pot, perfect it's the college mentality culture, and then culture. those people grow up and then they start telling their friends about it and so that's that's i think i, I just know two different that, sets of people who were first exposed to it in a dorm yeah it's like the vibe of to me it's a lot of it is to do with the vibe of pot culture like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those movies that like you know there's some movies like 2001 or whatever that's really heavily associated with going to see it on acid you know and Lebowski is one of those movies it's like he's always got a joint in his hand and he's always you know he's just stoned throughout the movie it's one of the few films I mean kind of like up in smoke in that way um but it also has I mean so yes pod culture yes college Ryan absolutely but it also has um just these really funny eclectic characters that I don't think you know, the Coen Brothers films are full of them, but but this one in particular has everybody from Maude Lebowski, who's weird enough, to Jack, <laughs> Jackie Treehorn, <laughs> to the Jesus, you know? I mean, just everyone, these characters, and then the weird cops in Malibu. I mean, who would have thought that? And then the cop who he reports his car, you know, are you guys going to be doing any, are you going to be doing any, um, detective you know detective work on my car what does he say (laughs) yeah we're gonna be working in ships (laughs) (laughs) you know it's also it came along at the right time with the internet too the the guys who are and and you too sasha who started blogging about movies at the time it's going to be that kind of movie that's right up your alley and the people who are going to come to your movie site are just going to be you're going to have the same taste and so you form little little clicks and cults that way too online about people who it's like a secret that people that we all share together, and when 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 we started to talk about movies online together in the late in the late nineties. Yeah, and I remember watching it. I mean, honestly, because it's from it's a very California e film, and I'm a native Californian, and because it's a lot about pot culture, and I grew up smoking pot. I don't know what it was, and the Coens are just really really funny. 
But I did laugh so hard. I Every time I watch it, even including the time I watched it with Michael just last night, it makes me cry with laughter. I mean, from day one. So I never had that, what Craig's talking about, where you revisit it and suddenly it, it, it pops at you. Burn After Reading was like that for me, which is the closest of their films that you get to the big Lebowski. But <clears throat> people have just become so affectionate. Um, for these characters that, like, when we were watching the tribute uh, for the Coens and Telluride and the Big Lebowski came up, I mean, the, the reaction to it was just off the charts because people love the, they love the dude first and foremost. They just love that, that there's this guy named the dude. And what a great character. I mean, every line he has in that is funny. And everything he does is funny. What about the scene where he's trying to light that joint? In the car. And it drops in his lap. He crashes into the dumpster. <laughs> it, uh, the other thing about it is that um, they're not... They're not traditional comedies in terms of their being set-up punchline jokes, but they're quotable lines, and and they ran into this with Raising Arizona, but all of their movies are massively quotable, and I think when the internet culture built up, the quotable aspect became really, really important, and Big Lebowski is one of the most quotable comedies on the planet. You can't explain to somebody why the quotes are funny. Either they know it or they don't, and it's a part of a Club that you build up. People who think those quotes are funny and people who don't get those quotes, and that right. makes mm-hmm. them special. That's right. Really, um, only movies that were uh, could have been a precedent for the for the Coen Brothers were the Marx Brothers. When you think about it, they had the same sort of absurdist humor where it just comes out of nowhere and just shocks you with how bizarre it is. You know how the but how even people, but even them they is... were more traditionally set up in punchline. There was no, a yeah, setup and sure. then there was a punchline. Yeah. But with the Coens, it's just a thing. Right. There's pe- people say stuff that's funny. And I, I consider myself an intelligent person, but I can't necessarily explain why something is funny, well, but I, it makes me laugh. Yes. Sasha was posting quotes from Big Lebowski last night on Facebook, and I was following up with it. And we were making each other laugh, even though they weren't they weren't things that you could explain to somebody who's outside of that bubble. Well, like every scene, like we were doing the, um, do you like sex, Mr. Lebowski? <laughs> or that he fixes the cable scene. I mean, that whole scene where she she walks in and the, the story's ludicrous and, the, and it's this log jam and porn movie within within a movie and it's um, with the, the nihilist guy I mean it's so funny but I do remember being online starting in 1994 and, and being <clears throat> there as the big Lebowski thing kind of took off and I think you guys are really onto something when you say it's tied in with the internet because I would write a line like this is and it always works it's always good for a laugh like strong men also cry <laughs> strong men <laughs> And also cry. <laughs> and That's then, the weird thing for me is that originally that movie for me was Raising Arizona. I can, there are friends that I have that I can just rattle off a random quote from Raising Arizona. They will know exactly what I'm talking about and they'll laugh. And for most other people, it's it's Big Lebowski. Absolutely, the, Big Lebowski. The three and it's funniest movies, Cohen, funniest sure. Coen Brothers movies of all time would have to be Raising Arizona. Uh, the Big Lebowski and O Brother, where art thou? Oh, Burn After Reading. Those three. Though. Burn After Reading, oh, I would yeah, add. Yeah, Abbott, yeah it. fourth. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But Fargo is really funny too. Fargo is. They, really they all funny. are. Even even No Country for Old Men is funny. Really, yeah. when you when you listen to the dialogue. Oh, absolutely. Even though yeah. most of it is taken directly from the novel, there's something about the way they write that is just. I can't explain it. They're the only people who who know how to do it. I, I've asked them directly how they do it, and they don't know. 
It's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff? It'll do till the mess gets here. (laughs) But, you know, it's funny because every character in The Big Lebowski is funny. And that's the one thing I remember. I was watching it back in when Emma was like three years old and I was dating this guy. And the first thing we did was get into bed and watch The Big Lebowski. (laughs) And, And because we've both seen it so many times and we both knew how funny it was, Every time it would cut to a new scene, we would just start laughing hysterically, even before the scene played out. Like with Walter and, um, and Lebowski, the, the, when, the, when they're doing the scene with the whites. <laughs> and, these, and Walter totally screws up the money exchange, that whole scene. Like from the first shot of that, you're laughing already because you know what's coming next. Or like G, G, introducing Jesus or what Michael was laughing at last night when they dumped Donnie's ashes over the... Over the over the ocean or, or when, when Lebowski, you know, goes to get his rug or to when Tara Reid shows up, I'll suck your cock for a thousand dollars. And it's just every <laughs> single scene. he wants to watch. <laughs> and then Philip Seymour Hoffman, oh, ho, 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 ho. But, it's you know, just like this gasp-inducing humor, you know? It's just like that you're shocked to hear these things come out of people's mouths. And the other funny thing about it, and what makes them so funny and what doesn't make Roberto Benigni so funny at all, <laughs> is that he thinks he's funny. He thinks he he's knows funny. He's but, funny. But he, he, he believes that he's funny, and he thinks everybody else is going to think he's funny. But nobody right. in Lebowski thinks they're funny. Nobody, nobody has any idea that they're funny. They don't have a clue that they're funny. What about the, the dance that the um, the landlord does? And he's totally deadpan serious. He's sincere in the dance that he does. It should be mentioned, too, that I think this was the first time they worked with T-Bone Burnett, who, who compiled the music for it. I could be wrong about that, but I think that's accurate. And he was a huge part of Oh Brother, We're Out There, which the soundtrack to that was was as, as more popular probably in the film. And he's a, a massive part of the upcoming Inside Lewin Davis and, and a great part of it. And it, it, their collaboration with him over the years has had these amazing, amazingly fruitful rewards. And with that, we'll end episode 51 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Ryan Adams, and me, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. You can-